there's only one snack that can make me feel like I'm having the true movie theater experience, and that's popcorn. When my mom and I hang in for a girl's night, we have to get our fix, and that's where Kelly's Killer Popcorn comes in. They're a small batch gourmet popcorn company, and believe me, one bite and you'll be hooked. Made in Austin, Texas, this family-owned business has tons of flavors. My mom loves their salted agave caramel, while I have a hard time picking between black pepper or dill pickle. Hmm, maybe I'll just mix the bags together. Oh, and when my dad and brother crash our girl's night, you know that spicy nacho popcorn is coming out. Every flavor is popped in 100% real butter and is whole grain and gluten-free. Which flavor will you be choosing? Head on over to kellyskillerpopcorn.com to indulge yourself in some scary good gourmet popcorn. And make sure to tag them on Instagram at kellyskillerpopcorn so that they can see what movie you're pairing with their flavors. That's kellyskillerpopcorn.com for American-made, small-batch, delicious popcorn. I might be vegetarian, but that doesn't mean I can't enjoy a good spice rub. My favorite place to get them is Smoked Bros, a veteran-owned and operated business that sells premium handcrafted dry rubs, spice blends, and seasonings. Guys, you can even put it on your popcorn. My favorites are Honey Badger, because he doesn't give a bleep, and Jelly and Peanut Flavor Topping, because mm, 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 some things just taste better together. The website even has recipes, so go check out smokedbros.com to support a veteran-owned and operated business and fill your cabinet with delicious flavor. On this episode of the Video Archives podcast, blast off to outer space with Roger and Quentin as they go toe-to-toe on one of the most polarizing Bond films of all time, Moonraker, starring Roger Moore. Heavily influenced by the science fiction craze caused by Star Wars, some say it's the worst Bond film of the franchise, while others, like myself, are diehard fans of this film. Pick a side as Quentin and Roger debate Bond villains that hit too close to home, baddies that turn into goodies, and Roger Moore's Bond. Next, return to Earth with Clint Eastwood's 1982 film Firefox. The Soviets had developed a new jet fighter called Firefox, and only one man is up for the job to steal the plane before it's used as a first strike weapon. Quentin and Roger think in Russian as they talk about fantastic use of exposition, the bankrupting of Russia, and a discussion on how PTSD is used to shape character and story. And just as a treat for all of you out there in podcast land, Roger and Quentin talk briefly, sans spoilers, about Peter Maris's 1979 film Delirium. Trust me, you won't want to look up this film before you watch it. Joining us now, here's Quentin and Roger. Thank you, Gala. And you're listening to the Video Archives Podcast. I'm Quentin Tarantino. And I'm Roger Avery. And tonight we're going to go into sort of a science fiction vein for, for, for both movies. When I presented to Roger what two movies we were going to talk about, he goes, damn, this... This is practically a theme episode. I go, well, no, it's not really a theme episode. It's it's close to a theme episode without exactly being a theme episode. Because I don't want to, it's just too easy to do theme episodes. I want to build up, build up to us doing theme episodes. But Roger has suggested from the very beginning of us talking about doing this, he wanted to do Moonraker. Uh, Lewis Gilbert's uh, James Bond movie with Roger Moore, Moonraker, which I was interested in doing because I had never seen Moonraker. I I, I, I I avoided it when it came out because 
I seemed to sense what I what I, what it was, and I didn't want it. Uh, so uh, so I was excited by the idea of actually having an excuse to watch Moonraker and 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 discuss it. Roger's been singing the praises of this movie ad nauseum since he's seen it. So I was coming into it with a open heart and an open mind. Nevertheless, I thought, what should I counter Moonraker with? <laughs> I thought of another Roger Moore movie, but then that would officially make it a, a theme episode. So no folks, unfortunately, his best movie, as yeah. far as I'm concerned. And I would have loved it. Actually. Yeah, no folks. Well, folks I, is such a I great movie. I could do a Roger Moore four movie episode and never have a James Bond movie in it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, but I decided... If we're going to go for spy films that rip off Star Wars, <laughs> I decided I would choose my spy film that, that rips off Star Wars, which is Clint Eastwood's Firefox. Uh, and we will get to that uh, in a bit. Roger Moore is James Bond 007 in Ian Fleming's Moonraker. And Jaws is back to put the bite on Bond. James Bond and Jaws are face-to-face -face in outer space in Moonraker. Moonraker, Certificate A, Odeon Leicester Square in Dolby Stereo. Where all the other Bonds end, Moonraker begins. Now showing Odeon Leicester Square. Moonraker, with co-hit Firefox, will be playing on August 8th and 9th on glorious 35mm film at the new Beverly Cinema. 7165 Beverly Boulevard, Los Angeles, California. For further information, go to thenewbev.com. The New Beverly Cinema. Always on film. So this is a CBS Fox home video. It's CBS Fox, it was both. And our video archives box, tape 612, mm -hmm. it was originally one of the um, uh, video outtakes mm. uh, tapes. Well, that makes sense. So, um... Moonraker. Albert R. Bricoli presents Roger Moore as James Bond 007 in Ian Fleming's Moonraker. Stereo mono compatible. This is the CBS Fox home video. And on the back, it, it, it proudly declares, James Bond now in space! <laughs> Exclamation point. Color, 1979. Roger Moore is back as James Bond in his 11th film in the popular 007 series. His new mission is to find Moonraker, a space shuttle that has been stolen while en route to England from the United States. He's challenged by the powerful Hugo Drax, Michael Lonsdale, a rich industrialist obsessed with the conquest of space. Bond's travels take him from California to Italy and on to Brazil, where he discovers Drax's evil space scheme. Along the way, he's assisted by the beautiful Dr. Goodhead, Lois Childs, and sensuous Corinne Dufour, Corinne Clary, while being threatened by sinister Chang, Toshiro Suga, Drax's manservant, and Jaws, that's in quotes, Richard Keel, a towering giant with metal teeth. 126 minutes, PG, parental guidance suggested. From the drama section, even though it's, uh, it could be argued it should be in the science fiction section, however, any self-respecting mom-and-pop video store would always put all the Bonds together under B in the drama section. Yeah, we always kept everything, all the Bond films together because... Uh, that's where everyone was going to go to. What are you going to do? <laughs> yeah, that's the what are you gonna do? Mix smart business. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so when Moonraker first came out, it was coming uh, kind of on the heels of Star Wars. Mm -hmm. It was also coming on the heels of uh, another Lewis Gilbert um, Bond film, 
Oh, the Spy Who Loved Me, which I actually loved. I loved The Spy Who Loved Me. Well, one of the things about The Spy Who Loved Me is, is the fact that it was probably the first Bond film to actually kind of be treated seriously as a film unto itself, maybe since since, since Goldfinger. And as I think about it, Lewis Gilbert was kind of evolving his uh, his style. Like he was always doing like little quirky, frankly funny mm-hmm. gags and bits. Uh, Moonraker came out and um, I was absolutely dubious of it. And then the the bad words started hitting. And uh, I saw it at the UA South Bay. Uh, I think I went with Scott McGill. And um, I hated it. Mm-hmm. I hated the film. Uh, and as you know, as a as a younger man, I was a really hard critic, like yes. a mean critic, maybe one might yeah. say. <laughs> like, I would. <laughs> <laughs> like I would go in, yeah, I've got a chip on my shoulder on this one. You best entertain me. Yeah, there, there was no middle ground with you. It, it, things were either totally fucking great, totally awesome, or piece of shit. And um, the young kind of angryish young man who went and saw this film uh, just absolutely had grown out of this humorous James Bond, which, you know, they would still be making the occasional humorous James Bond movie. I left the theater. I hated it. I think I, I was like, that's it. Like the worst James Bond movie. And for years, it was the worst James Bond movie to me. I think it wasn't until... Um, View to a Kill. View to a Kill. Yeah, it was <laughs> View to a Kill. But weirdly, when I think back on View to a Kill now, especially after my reevaluation of Moonraker, when I think back on View to a Kill, I think about Christopher Walken <laughs> and like his his amazing like delivery, uh, you know, in, in in that blimp he's flying around in <laughs> Silicon, <laughs> the future, gentlemen. Like, <laughs> I just love uh, I love him in that film. I had always, whenever anybody asked me, like, rank your Bond movies, I was always like, OK, Moonraker down, down low, down low. Low bond, low bond. But even thinking back on it every now and then, I'd say, well, it's got a really good opening sequence. My favorite opening sequence, though. So my daughter has this film club uh, online. And one night, I was just kind of walking by and said, oh, what are you up to? And she's like, I'm with my film club and we're we're watching uh, Moonraker. And I I was like, ugh, Moonraker. Like, why? (laughs) (laughs) And I think they were actually working their way through all the Bond movies. (laughs) And I craned my neck a little and hazarded uh, a peek at the monitor that she was looking at. And, uh, and I think she even had headphones on. So I wasn't even hearing the sound. Now, maybe to preface this, I need to say that how starved I am cinematically lately. Mm-hmm. So for me to suddenly look at the screen and see this amazingly beautiful set by Ken Adam. And it's the uh, the Olmec set mm-hmm. that they the, have. the cave yeah that kind of dwelling, yeah it's inside yeah. of a temple, and uh, I think Lonsdale even says you know the people who lived in the city that you know of which are ruins which surround us now you know like he, he's, they're they're on top of this dead civilization in that scene, and Ken Adam by this point in the movie has completely taken over, shot on a giant stage with a tank, with a snake in it. And there's beautiful, like, kind of models everywhere. These kind of beautiful Bond villain models. Mm-hmm. The, 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 you know, his, his, these Bond girls that are all around. And aren't they all princesses or something? 
Yeah, yeah, he did when Lonsdale <laughs> is introducing them, he's like, oh, the, the Countess, uh, so and so, and the, the Duchess, Countess of Sudan, uh, yeah, and the, and the, the, the Duchess of so and so, and like, yeah, he's completely uh, rounded up like all these amazingly beautiful women. I don't know. I just, I looked at it. I was like, okay, I, I need to reevaluate this film. It was like I had been walking through a desert and I was starved. And then suddenly I come upon an oasis. And I was like, I have to rewatch this movie. And I've noticed that as I've grown older and, you know, as you grow older, literally every seven years, the cells in your body are completely new cells. Mm -hmm. You are physically a different person about every seven years. You're from one to seven, you're a different person than you are from seven to 14 and 14 to 21, et cetera. And so the person that I am now, though I've got some sense memory of who I used to be, I'm different. I'm a different person right now. And so... I've noticed that when I see films that I dismissed quickly back in the day, I, I sometimes look at them now and I'm seeing things and appreciating things that I just wasn't prepared for back then. In fact, after um, the way Bond had been going and where cinema was going in that moment, I was just with the crest of what everyone was feeling and Bond had jumped the shark. Mm -hmm. That was the opinion back then. Yeah. Let me give just a little bit of the history. The history, rather than go through the history of Bond, what's actually really interesting is the history of Star Wars at that time, especially 1979, which is set up to be the biggest year of science fiction ever. The biggest surprise year. Yeah. Well, well I don't know if it's a surprise year because it, because the thing about it is, is this. Star Wars comes out in 77 and it just takes over the industry. It takes over pop culture. It, it's like nothing has ever come out that took over everything for a whole year. Took over Christmas. It took, yeah, exactly. The Star Wars Christmas special. In fact, I'm, one of the things I remember that was actually pretty good, frankly, was um, a Donnie and Marie musical version of Star Wars. So like Marie is playing uh, Princess Leia and Donnie is playing Luke. But the thing that was fantastic about it Chris Christopherson, who was the guest, oh. was playing uh, uh, Han Solo. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, and when you saw him in the Han Solo outfit, like, shit, he could have been in the fucking movie. I mean, <laughs> I, and he enters and he's singing a song. He's got his ray gun. And it was like, holy shit, I mean, this is like a, this is a legit Han Solo. Chris Christopherson was like really, really good. And naturally, R2-D2 and, and, and C-3PO are in it and, and Darth Vader. I even remember... Kind of officially, the first concert I ever saw was at Magic Mountain, and it was for Halloween, and it was like the, uh, it was either that year or the next year in 78, and it was uh, the uh, Wolfman Jack uh, <laughs> Halloween spooktacular. Yeah. Yeah, so he's hosting it, and a bunch of like oldie kind of acts are playing, and then at the end... Darth Vader shows up. <laughs> he's stopping everybody from boogieing, all right? So apparently, he's like Sir Nose de Vodafunk, all right, with, uh, from Parliament. So anyway, Star Wars comes out, and the entire industry, the entire movie business realize, holy shit, this is what people want to see. And every studio realize, we ain't got fuck all like this on the schedule. In fact, we've just got a bunch of other movies, and for 78 we're not going to be able to give the people what they want. But we can fix that for 79. But if you're going to make a science fiction spectacular, it's going to take a little over a year to do it because it's, it's got to be big. They've got to have big special effects. So the idea was all the studios started putting all their time and all their effort for 1979 
when they can come out with their other big science fiction uh, extravaganzas. So the first one out, out of the gate is Glenn Larson with Battlestar Galactica on television. First one out of the gate theatrically is also Glenn Larson because he does the TV movie for Buck Rogers in the 21st century. It's a not bad TV movie, but it's obviously a TV movie. Nevertheless, that is going to be actually the first Star Wars oriented thing to hit the theaters. Mm. So Universal released it at the theaters. This is the same year that Star Trek The Motion Picture comes out. The Black Hole comes out. Moonraker comes out. And then the one that actually ends up becoming the next legacy science fiction movie, the one that no one was paying attention to, Alien. Right. So this is going to be the, not just science fiction, the Star Wars James Bond movie, uh, which is not unknown to the um, Roger Moore films, because with the exception of Spy Who Loved Me, they always had a gimmick angle. At the beginning. Yeah. So uh, Live and Let Die is kind of has a black exploitation kind of sense because that was a big time. Yeah. All right. Then the next one, uh, The Man with the Golden Gun, has a stupid martial art kung fu section s- squeezed right in the middle of it. Yeah. They're almost like Marvel movies, how they pick a genre. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, uh, and now we're back to it again with like the biggest gimmick of them all is a, a, a science fiction James Bond in space. Okay, so now, Roger, so now you've sat down and watched the film. What did you think? Okay, so we sat down, we, we watched it again. I, I mean, you know that I like things to be a little goofy. Mm-hmm. You know that I like things to be a little out of control and a little wild. Well, this movie is out of control in a way that really vibes with Roger today. And part of that is that it's a spy film. It's an action movie. It's a romance. It's a travel log. It's a sci-fi, sure. It's also a horror film. It's got, well, it's got moments like a horror film. I'm just talking about how it switches its tone constantly. It becomes whatever it needs to be in the moment. It's a comedy. It's a Western, even at one point, where suddenly, and the musical choices are suddenly like uh, just rolling with it, like da, 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 da. Like suddenly when they're in Brazil, the the mm-hmm. Bond theme transforms into kind of like a big sky Western. Mm-hmm. And he comes riding over with these Caballero guys. And, oh, yeah. And, oh, that's part. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> you, I did not know what you were talking you about. You forgotten. Now it's all of a sudden coming back like the cold sting at the end but of you a know wet how, fist. But you know how bizarre that moment was? And he, you even commented on it mm-hmm. where, you know, we're in Brazil. It's like, well, yeah, it's the like, transition it's, to Brazil is phony, no transition. It, it's phony Morricone music with him dressed. Well, no, 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 no. It's, it's no, John it's Barry no, doing no, Morricone. No, 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 no. Actually, no, it was phony. Uh, uh, um, it's like the Bonanza theme yeah, or it's something. Liter- yeah, it's yeah, yeah. literally, it might be the Bonanza yeah, theme. It's a, it's a, <laughs> and he's dressed like the man with no name. Yeah, he's dressed like the man with no name. And for a little while, suddenly, like, and you even said, this is like The Prisoner, where suddenly we're giving an episode of The Prisoner, Living in Harmony, where suddenly we're in a Western, a Western bond well, look, movie. Look, look, I, well, I will admit, that's one of my more favorite parts about the movie. Uh, oh, but you know what? I'm going to bet that uh, that as we talk, that you say that more than once. I'll say it twice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, then, then uh, my bet is secure. <laughs> so, um... Even as much as I didn't like the movie by the end when I first saw the film originally Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. back in uh, 79, I couldn't deny how freaking fantastic the opening sequence is. I still think 
that this is the best opening stunt sequence of any Bond film. There's no CGI to lean back on because there's been more impressive, you know, cinematic sequences since then, you know, displays of money, displays of motorcycles jumping and buildings falling over. And I will look, I will say like, I do really like the opening sequence until Jaws gets into it. All right. But the thing about it, though, was you've been arguing, oh, no, you just need to look at this again with new eyes. And if you don't come back the way we did in 1979, if you look at it with new eyes, you, you can see this other kind of movie there. Well, I didn't feel that way when I watched the film. <laughs> However, I will say that the opening actually made me think that I was going to. I had forgotten those little opening vignettes. Part of the thing of it was real people are doing this. Yeah. There's n nothing phony about it. It's like real people are doing this. And then they're also figuring out how to film real people doing it. Yeah, what so feels if, that only Tom Cruise is doing that today. Yeah, so if somebody like, you know, uh, uh, is skiing and just like skis off of an Alp yeah. and you just see them fall like a hundred thousand feet. Well, that's a real guy yeah. falling. All right. That's yeah. not a, that's not a dummy. It's not a special effect. That's some it, French it's, ski it's expert. Some, yeah. You know, it's some like, stunt man who just did it. Yeah. All right. And, and, and for your eyes only, you know, that's a real guy on the, on the helicopter, Yeah. you know, flying around. It's, it's not dark man with green screen and whatever. It's no, it's a real fucking, well, it's probably green screen when you cut to Roger Moore, but everything else is, 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 is a real guy. Now, the whole concept of Bond falling out of an airplane and, and heading towards the one guy who's got a parachute to take it from him. And they're just free falling, free falling, free falling as they have a fight in midair. It's gripping. As it's gripping. As we know, a cameraman is also free falling, yeah. free falling, filming it. Yeah. Doesn't matter that they're not convincing as Roger Moore or, or Jaws. That didn't matter. Well, the actually, fact that they were real human beings mattered. And uh, and again, it reminded me that that's how the movies used to always be. Yeah. It's like there's somebody, some human being is accomplishing what they're setting out to do. And then another human being is filming it. I, I'm actually, that was that, that it blew me away. I actually have to say that I was surprised about two elements in, in the sequence where one, there are many moments where you're in a close up mm -hmm. with a stunt man playing Roger Moore. Yeah. Falling yeah. <laughs> yeah, from an airplane. And even though you're in a close up, I'll be damned. It's almost, I mean, you said it was easy, like uh, that you, you, that you can tell. I couldn't necessarily tell well, not only can I tell, I can tell the guy's Asian. Yeah. <laughs> I can tell the stuntman is Asian who's playing Richard Keel. But you know what? It's To me, it sucks. I don't care. I don't care. I know, it's not I, a real guy doing it. I'm not expecting big-ass Richard Keel to be free-falling like that. <laughs> but that one section, though, the one section where Bond's got to get the guy, and he just kind of turns himself into a missile. Yeah, and he goes and flying just in on him. Flying, like, towards him. And you know it's a real guy just Cutting through the air like a bullet. That was <laughs> fucking amazing. Yeah, it's, you start thinking back in the day, the guys making movies were like super studs. Mm -hmm. They were superhuman and that doing was incredible things. for the course for a James Bond movie at that time. Yeah, the, the jumps <laughs> that they had to do, the quantity of jumps and like, I think the Tom Cruise movie recently and that, did you know, a similar and, thing. And, and they didn't do that for any of the other action scenes. It was always just the opening action scene that yeah. like you see human beings doing things that should be impossible. After the opening sequence, oh, and I, I just have to say the Shirley Bassey song, which 
I'm it's t- terrible. It was originally supposed to be sung by Frank Sinatra, and apparently they went through. But maybe the most tuneless of all the James okay, Bond. Okay, that's things. what I thought. That's what I thought. But I'll have to tell you, the last two days since we watched it, it's Roger, been in my head. Give him your fucking headache. <laughs> Every terrible thing about this movie. Well, yeah, I agree. But then I thought about it for two days. Well, I, well, I love it. I love it. it <laughs> where are you? <laughs> Why do you hide? <laughs> let's talk. Let's just talk about the mission. Let's talk about Drax. Let's talk about re- what this is really about. Let's talk about the villain. Mm-hmm. Because this is really what hooked me on the film. Like watching the first sequence, I was like, you know, when we rewatched the movie and then even with you, I was like totally into it. And then the movie begins. We're given our mission. We see that the uh, the Moonraker has been stolen. And then we're introduced, uh, you know, to uh, to Drax and the, and the concept of our mission and who he is. And as I was watching it, lo and behold, I mean, maybe it's just because of everything that's going on right now um, in the world. But I look at it and I'm like, this is Elon Musk. No, yeah, no, that works. That works completely. They are. And even as they describe it at the back of the box, if you were to say he's challenged by the powerful Elon Musk, a rich industrialist obsessed with the conquest of space. Your best point is the Elon Musk you know, with his own spaceships and, and everything. And he's also, and, yeah, yeah, his yeah. own spaceships. They're the richest man in the world. He's, and- he's got he's got his facility in Cal in California in mm-hmm. the California desert, where he's uh, building things using government money, United States government money mm-hmm. for you know the the mm-hmm. British and American space programs. I suddenly realized this is a super contemporary Bond, and as the movie unfolds. And we start realizing like his his whole plan, which has since been repeated in a couple of Bond movies. Mm-hmm. And then we realize what the theme of the movie is, which I'll get to later. Mm-hmm. I just realized this movie says what I want a Bond movie to say. And even though it's goofy and wild as hell and kind of crazy and has a few embarrassing uh, moments and even a few little groaners, I'm so willing to overlook all of that because it's like somebody trying to push the envelope cinematically in a Bond film inside of the frame of what's possible. The movie has a bad rap, which I pretty much agree with, except for one thing that has a bad rap, and that is Michael Lonsdale. He has a bad rap of like one of the weakest. He's fucking amazing in this movie. I wouldn't go that far, but he- but he's, he, he's, but, but You he, laugh at every single line. I and, like him a lot. And in like, a good way. I like him a lot. I like him a lot. I mean, look, I think, I think he's neutered by the fact that they keep cramming jaws into it all the time. He helps make Drax a, a, a third-rate villain. Uh, uh, and even, I, but I don't think he's a third-rate villain, but I, I, I like the implications, even without a uh, uh, Elon Musk parallel. But the parallel is kind of, you can't ignore it, it's frankly. It's impossible to ignore uh, it. Uh, and you can imagine Elon Musk saying lines like, even in death, my magnificence is boundless. Yeah, I know. Like, he might have <laughs> tweeted that, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Left to his own devices, uh, Drax would be even more powerful in the movie than, than he is, but I think the film had other fish to fry. To me, look, when they go into space, it gets a little exciting. I don't think once they get to space, it's exciting, but the going to space is exciting. But the one sequence that I actually think kind of works in the way I think the movie wants to work, in the way that you're claiming that it does work. I think the one sequence that actually kind of works is they get to California 
And uh, so Bond lands in, in uh, LAX, and you you see the uh, the famous uh, space station restaurant there yeah. in the background. And he gets on uh, you know the secondary Bond girl. He gets uh, she's a uh, helicopter pilot, so she's going to take him to Drax's home. And it's like you know it's out in the, the California desert, so they're just flying, and they go to the uh, where they make all their space shit, and that goes on forever. And I don't know where they're in. I guess they're in Tustin or someplace like that. Okay, or Redlands I or mean, something. Yeah, like yeah. Palmdale. Yeah, Palmdale. Yeah. Some like some desert Palm Springs. Yeah. You know, someplace like that. They're out wherever they actually do those yeah. uh, tests at. And then they're on like desert for a while, for a while, and then there's this right in the middle of the desert. There's this greenery and there's this trees. And then there's Versailles. <laughs> now, I'm not 100% sure from watching the movie if the idea is that he just built a replica of Versailles and put it in Palm Springs, or if he just bought Versailles from the French government nope. and had it shipped he bought to Versailles. Palm Springs. He okay. bought Versailles and had it shipped over. She actually says he brought it over stone by stone. But stone by stone doesn't mean he got, but I think I think the implication <laughs> is yes. Because he tried to buy uh, Eiffel Tower and the French he's, wouldn't sell him He's that. immensely powerful. He doesn't care about governments. Like this is starting to sound really familiar to me in this day and age that we're in right okay, now. Okay, but the, the thing about it was, okay, where the film, what? That's really funny. Okay, the idea that somebody would buy Versailles <laughs> and stick it in the middle of the California desert. Yeah, and then he's got everybody dressed in French in French outfits yeah. and they're doing shooting parties. But and- the thing that's so <laughs> fucking great about it is they go to Versailles and film it. <laughs> they're actually shooting in the real Versailles. Yeah. And it's a they use it about as well as Sofia Coppola did in Marie Antoinette. Yeah. So the fact that they're shooting in the real Versailles and saying that it's California. Okay, the, okay that is there's a, a Hebrew title, Fouk le Fouk, which is a, a reverse <laughs> yeah, yeah. on a reverse. Yeah, reverse and that's a reverse on a reverse. All right. And just the whole concept of that is clever and is funny and the the tongue is in the right side of the cheek. Yeah. It's the only big idea that I think they have that they pull off. You know, the movie is a French co-production. In those mm-hmm. days, uh, France was great to do co-productions in. And mm-hmm. all of these guys, like when I lived in the south of France, uh, you know, I got to know a few of them. Like all these like Bond directors, mm-hmm. they all live in the south of France. They mm-hmm. like live in, you know, Saint Paul Vance and yeah, yeah. and so does Roger Moore. Mm-hmm. In fact, they're yeah, all yeah, living yeah. down there, mm-hmm. and you can see the kind of artifacts of a French production, the kind of Remy Julien style mm-hmm. gags mm-hmm. and uh, and things throughout the movie. Okay, so you mentioned oh, let's just right there at Versailles. He's with um, her secretary, mm-hmm. and there's a moment where where he's like kind of snuck into I think it's maybe Drax's room or the, the office. She's a secretary, and so mm-hmm. it's the office, and he's kind of rummaging through her desk, and she captures him. She finds him, mm-hmm. and she's kind of this beautiful French actress who I think he's French Canadian actually. Oh, is she French Canadian? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. so uh, apologies to the French, but. <laughs> Uh, she catches him and he approaches her and he's about to do his wiles. Now, at this point for Roger Moore as Bond, and I think you even mentioned it as we were watching the movie, he's aged up quite a bit. He's an elder Bond almost at this point. Like he's doing folks kind of around the same time, yeah. right? Yeah. Where he's got a beard and he's playing his actual. Yeah, I think he's, he did it just before. Yeah. And here he's meant to be playing sexy and everything. And there's a moment where he moves in to kiss her to, to kind of magnetically hypnotize her and she kind of recoils from him. Mm-hmm. She actually pulls back like with a, are you serious? Look on his face. 
And then he does a kind of, hey, I'm James Bond. I'm mm-hmm. still James Bond. Mm-hmm. And she's like, well, what the what the fuck? And they kiss. <laughs> and maybe it's because I'm now in my 50s. I'm kind of identifying with Roger Moore. I love Roger Moore, <laughs> like in this role. And I'm kind of getting that he's, uh, you know, that he's kind of, he's he's nearing the end. Look, I'm a huge Roger Moore fan. I'm um, not so much as Bond, but I, I like almost everything else. The irony of Roger Moore playing Bond is the fact that Roger Moore had been playing that kind of character since the late 50s, or back when he was on Maverick, playing Bo Maverick. Yeah. Handsome, uh, 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 von vivant, mm-hmm. uh, that's athletic, and but also has a sense of humor, but also like almost impossibly handsome. Incredibly like, charismatic. Like, distractingly yeah. handsome, yeah. Uh, but incredibly charismatic, a little bit of a, a sense of humor about who he is. Everything that he had done beforehand was just kind of perfect for what they wanted him to do in Bond. All the, the the saint, he was terrific. The Bond movie he should have been in is on His Majesty's Secret Service. If he had been cast in that, at that, at, at, at he's, he's the perfect age. And that would have been the perfect Bond movie for him to do. And I'm not, I'm not, not, I'm not shitting on uh, uh, George Lazenby, but, but Roger Moore would have, been, that would have been better in that movie. To yeah. me, I really like that movie, but there's no Bond in it. And I actually think the only Bond movie he's sort of the right age is Live and Let Die. He's still kind of the guy who's in the movie Gold. Mm-hmm. He's still kind of the guy uh, that's a uh, uh, Simon Templar. Yeah. Um, from that point on, he's just kind of aged out. He's just, he's, he's too old. He's too old for the role. He's mm-hmm. mummified to who he used to be. Now, he's not that anymore. And nobody seems to know it more than Roger Moore. Roger Moore totally understands it. He knows that it's a little ridiculous that all these women are just falling all over him. He's pretty much wearing, by by Moonraker anyway, he's pretty much wearing a Roger Moore mask. And that's even in For Your Eyes Only. All right, he's wearing a mask of what Roger Moore used to look like. And uh, you can tell that it's killing him to uh, keep that weight. There's almost something punk rock about how he doesn't commit to the fight scenes. <laughs> 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 he doesn't commit to them at all. He just, I mean, it's just like he, he does just enough, just enough to not make it parody. But he's still got this weird smile on his face. Like, no way can I beat up all these guys. And I'm and the stuntmen are doing almost everything. I throw a couple of punches. <laughs> he never really commits. Even the action stuff, he's not really committing. He's always got a sardonic look on his face. That's the weird aspect of this era of Bond movie until the end, all right? Yeah. Like from uh, uh, pretty much from at least The Spy Who Loves Me on. But you know what? Here in Moonraker, we still have, I mean, I mean, maybe it's too much emphasis for me on Ken Adam, but Ken Adam to no, me he's is the... Bond. He, that is a Bond movie is Ken Adam. And we get our first like look at Ken, uh, well, what Ken is Well, it's your most doing. legitimate point is the yeah. fact that Ken Adams is the, uh, well, the tour of the film, well, especially, well, at see... a certain, especially at a certain point when it's just one big set after another. Well, when you see for the first big one, the yeah. first introduction, okay, we're, this is Ken. We've given him something to do. The centrifuge. Yeah. 
Okay, one, that's a mechanical centrifuge. It's like he's got to build that thing to operate. Mm. <laughs> like it's, uh, that's no simple thing to make that mm. they did down there. And it looks really badass and it photographs great and it's a great sequence. Well, like one of your things that you've actually mentioned that, 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 that I have to tip my hat to is the idea that like, okay, even giving that it's a cheesy Star Wars ripoff, a cheesy Star Wars ripoff designed by Ken Adams <laughs> might be better than Star Wars. <laughs> like, I can't argue with that. That is, those sets are fucking amazing. Every control panel, every corridor, every, every, uh, 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 observation deck i mean everything because there's a moment where we walk into that um uh that temple that olmec temple and that that's that shot that that tied me back into this film that made me want to re-engage with this movie from that moment forward it is only ken adam this movie i agree and suddenly it is one amazing Ken Adams set. And sometimes they're just throwaways, like that blast chamber sequence where yeah, you're yeah. underneath the space shuttle. It's like a conference room. No, that was terrific. It's every bit as good as, <laughs> as Dr. Strangelove, this incredible set. And it's there for you know, 30 seconds of once, screen time. I think the space stuff is silly as fuck. Having said that, one of the things that's amazing about it is it plays... Not even like a Star Wars ripoff, like something like uh, like Star Crash or Message from Space. Although they do rip it off. They, yeah, they, yeah. <laughs> it it plays more like a um, a Japanese or a spaghetti sci-fi film from about ten years earlier. Like for instance, um, you know the, the big set piece in in in, in Moonraker is when this space force of Americans show them they all have their backpacks and their ray guns and then they fight Drax's space force floating through space and they're with uh, their jetpacks and their and their uh, ray guns. Now, I've seen two movies that have had sequences like that before. One is Kinji Hukasaku's uh, The Green Slime hmm. has a big sequence like that. Another one is Antonio Margheriti's Wild Wild Planet, which is one of the best of the spaghetti uh, sci-fi movies. Now, frankly, I like them both better in those other films. However, this is Star Crash, Wild Wild Planet with Ken Adams yeah. doing the sets and, uh, and studio a completely budget. <laughs> unlimited budget yeah, for special effects. Yeah, and no time, but spend as much as you need to. Uh, spend as much. Yeah, check. So it's like we're seeing the stuff that's done in 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 cheesy sci literally sci-fi, not science fiction, sci-fi movies, but never done this elaborately. Every model in this thing is fantastic. Yeah. When the space station blows up, Fantastic! Yeah, the it, model blowing is, is amazing. Even the, even the simplest thing, even the even even the the passenger jet getting blown away by Moonraker's uh, sure. uh, uh, exhaust Blast, draft. Yeah. That was fantastic. That that frankly, plane all of up. the takeoffs of the Moonraker ah. uh, models are fantastic. These are miniatures being lifted in real time, and yeah. it's stunning to look at. Spectacular model work. In fact, I'm looking at special effects that were. Honestly, reminding me of Dark Star, which we talked about before. Yeah, yeah. And yes, they are directly ripping off Star Wars. They blow up their version of the Death Star. Yeah. We get that. So you're, you know, if you're a kid and you want some Star Wars, you're delivered a little bit of that and use the force bond. There's mm. that moment. <laughs> We've got to go off of our automatic targeting system. Use the force bond. I'm okay with all that. Those are like kind of my least favorite moments of the mm. movie, mm -hmm. but I'm okay with it. 
I love the the kind of um, playful style. I love that this is when they're flying. I love that that entire battle sequence that you're talking about is completely hellaciously violent. There's so much death going on. Everyone is getting blasted by lasers. And and by the way, no, there's I, death all the way throughout the whole movie. That poor gondola guy. <laughs> oh, everybody's getting it. Everybody's getting it. But what's weird about everybody getting it in this is they take such great care and so much time during the liftoff sequence where they're flying up and Bond says, let's see what the cargo is. And they flip on the cargo and they see that the cargo of the space shuttle is full of, you know, men and women two by two. And they're all kind of in zero G and slow motion with their beautiful uh, sort of L'Oreal hair floating Mm -hmm. in the, in the air kissing their ideal uh, mate. And there's this realization, like all these beautiful people are up there. They're they're there to breed mm-hmm. and to repopulate the earth. Well, once the time the Space Force gets there and starts their <laughs> war in space, everyone on the station is killed, mm-hmm. except for Jaws and uh, that, that little girl and yeah, you yeah. Know, whoever else manages to escape. All of those people are killed <laughs> in the end. And- to me, it's it's poignant. And, the, and during this entire space war thing, when you listen to the music, it's sad music that's playing. <laughs> it's a strange juxtaposition of all this crazy action and then this kind of sad music. It's like pending doom is what I feel out of that music. It's Look, okay. Uh, obviously, I don't agree. Uh, um, I think Lewis Gilbert not only does a horrible job directing the film, I think as it's as if made for a Guy Hamilton reappreciation society. <laughs> to watch Moonraker again made me realize that, wow, Diamonds Are Forever isn't so bad. <laughs> well, I love Diamonds Are Forever. And I would say Diamonds Are Forever is, you know, uh, Live and Let Die isn't so bad. I mean, the boat chase at Live and Let Die is is like the seven ups uh, compared to the gondola chase in uh, uh, Moonraker. One of the things we said, and I was wrong. I was giving it too much credit. I said, this is like a, this is like the chase in a Dean Jones, <laughs> Walt Disney movie, except those are done well. There's nothing. The, 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 I love uh, the gondola chase. The yeah. gondola chase? The no. gondola chase is horrible. All right. You know, I mean, but the, the end chase of Million Dollar Duck is actually pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like Million Dollar Duck, but I also like the gondola chase in this. I love that it just, I like I love that the guy comes out of a coffin to throw knives at him and then falls back into the coffin. Like this movie is- It kills fu- the poor gondola guy. This movie is, <laughs> this movie is made for like, you know, a, a specific age of kid to watch. And Yeah, I, what, 55? Well, <laughs> I am at 55 ready to reawaken that person who, okay. you know, I, I held back so hard on when I was uh, when I was young. I was so uh, wound up in my own shit that like, to be honest, Quentin, when I watch Bond movies today, I feel what's missing. It's a kind of playfulness, a goofiness. Like, I don't mind it being playful and goofy. I love that in those movies. And when I think when I think about my favorite Bond movies, like you were talking about a few mm-hmm. of your favorites, you know, my go-tos were always Diamonds Are Forever and uh, Goldfinger. I mean, those are easy ones to go for. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I mean, look, when I watched the movie, it made me wish we were watching Live and Let Die. All right. Because I haven't really, I've only half seen well, that one. That can know. be arranged. No, no, I know that. I know. <laughs> but it was making me wish I, we were watching Live and Let Die. And at the end, when it said, you know, stay tuned for Bond coming up next in For Your Eyes Only, 
I just like, oh, yeah, okay, a real movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. a movie that takes itself seriously. Yes. A movie that, um, you know, isn't allowing With a real itself. Bond girl. <laughs> hey, I love all the girls in this Bond movie. I love them all. Okay. I think they're all fantastic. And I just have to say also Holly Goodhead uh, as uh, even the his name equivalent. Holly Goodhead is so stupid. And I actually think that she is actually named that in, in the bond in the she book. She's not named that in the well, book. Of course the, she's not. <laughs> she's not. Because, OK, look, you have to remember that there was a time where the biggest sex joke ever said in a Hollywood movie was the name Pussy Galore. By the time <laughs> it gets to. Moonraker with her name Holly Goodhead. It's such a beyond obvious pun for a Bond movie. It's it's not worthy of a Bond movie. That's the kind of name that the sexy phys ed teacher in a Porky's ripoff, not Porky's, <laughs> or an Animal House ripoff. Her name would be, you know, Mrs. Goodhead. It's part, right. of, the, it's part that, of the format. <laughs> Listen, it's hard for me to defend the name Holly Gork Goodhead it. because yeah. it's actually a disservice to who she is, both uh, both in the original book and, and in this movie. I mean, when she whips out all of the, like, she's Bond. She's a Bond. You know, she's his equivalent. Look, I, I, like, I, in other movies, we get fucking Felix Leitner. No, look, I, look, in I this, we get an actual equivalent to Bond, a female actually, equivalent who has I devices actually, and- I like can, Lois Childs, but I think ass. she's a non-entity in this movie. And I don't, and I don't know if it's 100% her fault because I think there's a situation where- they never decided on what the character should be. And I think they were torn but between three different ideas and they never made a decision. And so uh, she never really had a character to play. She she couldn't, she, she didn't know whether the shit would go blind. She couldn't go left, she couldn't go right because they wouldn't let her. I mean, just to use as another example, I mean, Jill St. John has a character in, in uh, Diamonds Are Forever and you can like her, you can not like her, but she plays the character. And there is a, there's a contrast to her with Bond and there's a contrast to everything else. She's just kind of, you know, uh, and forget about the fact that it seems as if her entire performance is, is, is uh, uh, post-dubbed, which makes her never sound like she's in the same room. It does sound like that. It does sound like that. There is a kind of but detached- Lois Childs is is a good actress. Yeah. I, I I worked with her on a, on a CSI, so I don't actually uh, think it's uh, um, necessarily her fault. She was terrific in in uh, uh, Death on the Nile. Yeah, I'll, you know, all I can say is that her final line in this movie, when she just says, "Take me around the world one more time, James." I don't know. I just I love. Well, that was the, uh, that was the only good She's line so they gave her. But not only does she have a good line, the head and shoulder shot of her floating is probably the best. Anti-gravity part of the whole movie yeah. is that little like filming down on her Just floating. That, moment. that one moment is the best anti-gravity moment of the fucking film. Yeah, <laughs> you feel it. You feel it. That that's Moonraker. Is Moonraker trailer. my third favorite Bond film? <laughs> okay. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.
we're back for our second half of the episode, uh, joined by Gala, who's going to chime in on her father's folly and tell us <laughs> yes, what she thinks. Well, <laughs> I am going to talk about my second favorite Bond film in the franchise, which is Moonraker. My first, by the way, is Man with the Golden Gun, because that is my favorite Bond film. Why is it your favorite Bond film? The Henchman, Nick Knack. Mm-hmm. I think personally, I know a lot of people out there are big Jaws fans, but I'm a Nick Knack fan. Nick Knack loves to watch. All he wants to do is watch a gunfight between Bond and the other best gunsmen in the world. And if Bond wins, he gets the entire island. I think it's a great plot. <laughs> Moonraker, I think is also really fun. So that's why it gets my number two spot. Star Wars was so popular they wanted to cash in on it. I'm personally really glad they did. There's a lot of film science fiction hidden inside this movie. Like, for example, um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind is referenced yes. as the keypad <laughs> number do, 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 do. on yes. Drax. Yes. Can't help themselves. And Spielberg apparently actually wanted to direct this movie. And he also wanted to direct For Your Eyes Only, but was declined both times by Broccoli. Then he went on to go make Indiana Jones instead. So yeah. perfect. We got yeah. that instead. Um, Moore is my favorite Bond out of any Bond. I like him more than Connery. I know it's a little bit, he's a little old, but I love yeah, Moore. It's, it's a controversial mm-hmm. thing to say. But oh, I love Connery No, too. a lot of people love no, A lot, a lot of, of people love Our Roger age, we, we grew up with, yeah. Sean Connery was always our dad's Bond, even though he, we held on to it. We saw the stuff in revivals, but, but, but Moore was our Bond. Yeah. For better or for worse, he was our Bond. Yeah, it's true. I have to defend Dr. Holly Goodhead at this table. I know I'm going to get a lot of stares and groans right now, but she's my favorite Bond girl. Oh, my God. Besides besides Lois Maxwell as Moneypenny, who I feel like gets overlooked a lot, but I love Dr. Holly Goodhead. After a string of, in my opinion, a little bit boring Bond girls, we got a smart, intelligent brunette. It did it for me. I loved it. I know that's not. Well, you're like, you're like a smart, intelligent okay, okay, brunette, okay. so you, okay, you well, identified with the character. Okay, well, okay. Well, let me push back on this a little bit. But what do you think about my comments about the idea that they had three different character traits for her, and they had never really quite decided which way to go with it? And so she's got a little bit of. You know, do you do you see that, or do you not see that? Do you think no, no, she is her character. Personally, I think she is her character because she's a CIA agent. When she's going there, she's playing other characters. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's as much as they're confused about her character, rather than they say you are a CIA agent undercover playing other characters. Yeah, but she's I, playing a rocket scientist. She's playing a rocket scientist with NASA, which mm-hmm. she kind of is with NASA, but isn't. Mm-hmm. But what I like about her is that she's just kind of doing her own thing. She's not depending on Bond. She's kind of our first... I don't want to say our first equal to Bond as a Bond girl, but she is. I think that that's what they wanted to do. I think she's more of an appendage. All right. You know, she's just the silent partner standing right next to him, shoulder to shoulder with him, but saying nothing for the last 20 minutes of the movie. And that's fair because, as Roger pointed out, having the Ian Fleming Moonraker book in my hand, I actually do think that the character is a disservice to the Bond girl in this book, which is the only Bond girl that Bond does not get with Mm -hmm. in the novels Mm -hmm. and is the only girl in the franchise not to be used in a film yet. Mm -hmm. In uh, Die Another Day, Rosamund Pike's character was renamed to Miranda Frost from this Bond girl's name. Do you want to guess her name, Quentin? No, what is it? Gala Brand. Oh, really? I share a name with a Bond girl. (laughs) I grew up my whole entire life never sharing my name with anything. 
And <laughs> I had the coolest Bond girl, in my opinion. Well, you were sharing your name with uh, Gala Eluard, who was the yeah, but not wife Gala of Brand. Yeah. <laughs> Is she the same situation? She's no, a CIA? she's actually uh, she works with. Uh, I think she's a secretary with the British yeah. Secret Service. It's British police. British police. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's undercover with Hugo Drax. Hugo Drax has abducted her fiance, which is unknown to Bond. Mm. And Bond, over the course of the book, falls in love with her. Mm-hmm. But really, Gala Brand is there just to save her fiance, and mm. she'll do anything to save him. So it's kind of this nice romantic thing where her and Bond, in the end, kind of just shake hands, and he's like, "Well, that one got away." Okay, okay, yeah. okay. So, so, so that is. So then, so then, why do you love this? Xerox of a Xerox of a Xerox of a Xerox that's put through a deflavortizing machine, all right, <laughs> that is Holly Goodhead. Man, I just, I like a smart Bond girl. I like a rocket scientist CIA agent who just looks at James Bond and says, take me around the world one more time. She's just in it for the ride. She's as close to an equal as we're getting at this time period. Yeah, it's it's a little tough. It's it's difficult because- well, that, wait it, a minute the, now. Okay, the, I don't know if I can go with that because Barbara Bach's Russian- agent in uh, is pretty much literally his opposite number. And in the book, it's the only book told from her perspective. The that's book, interesting, yeah. The, that's really, I mean, I've always been meaning to read that book because it's the only book that's written from the first person perspective of another character. Yeah. But my least favorite Bond movie of all time, for sure, is Octopussy. Okay, now I have to say, I've never actually seen Octopussy because it was one of those things where never say never again, which is mediocre at best uh, came out the same year as Octopussy and I I voted with my my ticket money mm-hmm. but uh, uh, Edgar Wright has a great line about Octopussy and he's like why would you make Austin Powers in a world where Octopussy already exists <laughs> I personally love the line in the movie where she goes, my daddy calls me his little octopussy. It's one of the most iconic Bond lines ever. That's very disturbing to me that that's your favorite line. It's a great line. Now, I'm going to give you a few fun facts, Quentin, about the film. It is the highest grossing Roger Moore Bond. Mm -hmm. It is currently the eighth highest grossing Bond out of all the Bond films, including the new one that just came out. First off, Jaws' girlfriend was originally supposed to be taller than him. But Keel wanted a rewrite. The very tiny French actress was cast. Producers were not sure if the height difference would work until Keel revealed that his own wife was the same height. Mm. And that's when they finally decided to cast her. Now, about Jaws's tone in the movie, which I don't think, Quentin, you really connect with, the comedic aspect of Jaws. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> at all. I don't think it's his favorite henchman. Yeah. Jaws became a good guy for one reason. Because After seeing Jaws and The Spy Who Loved Me, children sent fan mail to director Lewis Gilbert asking, why can't Jaws be a goodie, not a baddie? Mm -hmm. He received countless mails asking, why is Jaws not a good guy? And he listened to the children and showed that anyone can become a hero and do the right thing. Well, see, there it is. That's exactly why I love this movie, that Lewis Gilbert was getting fan mail from little kids who asked, why can't Jaws be a, a goodie? I think that is so sweet. Look, I think that's sweet too, all right? But you can imagine writing that letter to the Batman TV show and I'm like, how come yeah. the, how come the Riddler has to be such a bad guy? I love the Riddler. All right, I can imagine that. <laughs> it doesn't mean that he should be. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't mean he should be a good guy. I'm just, a, I'm a little kid. What the fuck do I know, all right? To me, to me, the whole thing is, uh, 
It's not whimsical. It's cynical. The whole movie mm. is cynical. It's 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 cynically ripping off Star Wars in this cash grab kind of way. It's cynically using Jaws. That was this special thing in, in, in The Spy Who Loved Me. You know, to me, it's just, you know, it, it's 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 base. There's a cynical commercial aspect about the film. Well, that cannot be denied, actually, because... The Brazil sequence is a great example where every single shot seems to be designed after a 7-Up billboard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's like 7-Up, 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 7-Up. Like 7-Up is everywhere. <laughs> and for anyone out there wanting to watch Moonraker, this is available all over. I purchased my copy, which is a CBS Fox videotape for $30 on eBay. But... Video Archives purchased theirs for $89.98. Does the one you purchase have yes, a little drawer I, like this? I purchased the exact same copy. I have to describe this because Quentin's uh, CBS Fox Video, which is the uh, Video Archives actual box, man, back then they made the tapes snugly fit into this beautiful... No, I mean, all those, because it doesn't have the shape of a video box, oh, of, of, a, of a video cassette. It, it's like a, a it's, square. It's ever so and slightly it, larger. It's movie poster almost. Yeah, it's a movie poster size, but it but the, but there's a drawer. It actually literally has a drawer yeah, that pulls it, out. And it, like, it cradles it almost elegantly with a nice reveal. I, like, I love it. No, I agree. Well, thank you for your opinion, Gala. Now, F.O. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, now we come to our <laughs> second half of our double feature, uh, and that is Clint Eastwood's Firefox. The plane, Firefox, the most devastating killing machine ever built. The man, Mitchell Gant, U.S. fighter pilot. Gant, can you fly that plane? Yeah, I can fly it. The mission, steal Firefox. <laughs> Clint Eastwood in one of the most incredible undercover operations in history, Firefox. Firefox, with co-hit Moonraker, will be playing on August 8th and 9th on glorious 35mm film at the new Beverly Cinema, 7165 Beverly Boulevard, Los Angeles, California. For further information, go to thenewbev.com. The new Beverly Cinema, always on film. I will read the back of the box. The tagline is the ultimate warplane dot 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 demands the ultimate pilot. Like a high tech bat out of hell, it rips through the skies at six times the speed of sound. Like a shimmering ghost, it is invisible to radar. Like a sleek cobra, it spits death with missiles launched and guided purely by the pilot's thoughts. It's a MiG-31, the most devastating war machine ever built by man. Codename, Firefox. But Firefox belongs to the Russians. To maintain the delicate balance of world power, the West must steal it. The right man for the job? Take a guess. Clint Eastwood, recipient of the special D.W. Griffith Award for career achievement in the 1988 Golden Globe Awards, brings his legendary star quality to the role of ace pilot Mitchell Gant. Still haunted by hallucinations of Vietnam, Gant is volunteered, quote-unquote, to be smuggled into Russia, defy the KGB, commandeer Firefox, and fly it home to the world's most lethal air defense system. Like no film before it, Firefox, based on Craig Thomas's riveting bestseller, delivers a unique 
payload of nail-biting suspense and espionage, as well as special effects high adventure. As with Heartbreak Ridge and Pale Rider, Eastwood's tight, hard-edged direction takes a low-key approach that lures viewers into its unique rhythms. Masterminding a slew of awe-inspiring visual effects, John Dykstra brings his considerable talents back into Earth's atmosphere after conquering outer space. That's for sure. And winning an Academy Award for his celebrated work on Star Wars. Climb into the cockpit, cinch up your safety belt, and let Eastwood take you for the ride of your life aboard Firefox, newly issued in Hi-Fi Surround Stereo. Mono compatible like uh, Moonraker? Yeah. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> and that would be in the drama section under F. I saw Firefox literally the night it opened. Warner Brothers was really, really into Firefox that summer. It came out in July 82. And they peppered the TV with, with, with uh, spots for Firefox all the time. And then... Uh, so me and my buddies, uh, we went to see Firefox uh, opening night. So the, the eight o'clock show at the Hollywood. And there was a line all the way. It was a big opening weekend for Firefox. It was a line all the way down Hollywood Boulevard. And we waited in line and we got to see the movie. And pretty much everybody was disappointed in it. And actually, the film got very bad word of mouth on its. Uh, I, I think it probably did really good in its opening weekend, but it did. Uh, but bad word of mouth followed it around, and I and it it, it dropped considerably. And it's 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 kind of the the nature of the beast for this kind of movie because the whole movie is obviously about uh, Clint Eastwood is going to steal this plane and try to fly it out of Russian airspace, um, and all the TV spots had to do with uh, him stealing the plane. It yeah. had to do with uh, him flying around and the and the, him having big dogfights. That's only a small part of the movie. That's 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 the third act. But everything else is actually a pretty serious Robert Ludlum style espionage movie. Like a serious uh, a Cold War thriller. Him meeting this contact who takes him to another contact who takes him to another contact all leading to the point where he can actually maneuver his way through all these surrogates and all these like resistance fighters against the Russians to put him in the air hangar where the Firefox is so he can eventually steal it. And everyone just thought that was boring. And I even remember the, the variety review at the time said, Hey, this actually sounds like it would be a cool movie. Nothing. It, it could be fun. A good us versus the Russians movie. And Eastwood's the perfect person to star in a movie totally, like that. Totally. And they actually said that he made a mistake making it to Robert Ludlum, like in the, in the first three quarters to me, looking at the movie now, that's a good part of the movie. I mean, I, I think it's pretty obvious that, Eastwood was a little out of his depth when it came to doing the special effects stuff. I'm pretty sure that he left all that to John Dykstra. But I think what why Eastwood responded to the script is everything that no one else liked about the movie. Is I think he responded to the you know the the genuine spy nature of the story of him and Russia being sent from this place to that place. I think that's really good storytelling. I mean, it might be some of his best storytelling from that point in the 80s. Well, like when the ads for this came out, it was all flying. There may have been a gunshot or a car crash or somebody running around or something, 
but it was pretty much all flying. And it was like, you know, you've got to think in Russian. You've got to think in Russian. And it was like mm-hmm. this kind of almost not sci-fi thing, but like, you know, no, it is sci-fi. Sci-fact, you know, size. Well, it is sci-fi. There was, I don't think we have a plane like this today. Well, the Chinese might. <laughs> they don't have a plane that goes six Mach six. Yeah, they've got a plane that goes, they just did some kind of uh, hypersonic jet that circled the earth. Multiple. I mean, well, it's one of the things that actually kind of, I don't say hurt the movie. A little bit after this, Top Gun will come out. Yeah. And then Iron Eagle will come out and all these movies will come out and they're going to use real jets. And so everything that they have to, they can't do that because they don't have jets. Like <laughs> like every other audience member, I went to the movie and I was expecting mostly that. And I have to say, when I first saw it, my feelings were, I was just bored for the first part of it. And then when the airplane stuff happened, to be honest, when I first saw the movie, I just wasn't plussed by it. Now, watching the movie again with you, mm-hmm. I found myself really enjoying all of the Ludlum-like, you know, uh, lead up to it. In fact, that turned out to be all I really liked about the movie. Yeah, no, look, I mean, look, I'd like to say that I was smarter than everybody else, but I don't, I'm not saying I was bored, but at some point I kind of almost lost track of what I was watching sitting in the theater. It was like, there was so much cloak and dagger going on that I wasn't suspecting that I was like, what am I watching? I I literally forgot almost for yeah, a second. Where am I? I almost forgot for a second what I bought a ticket for. And then even though I, I recognized how cool that shot was of him coming into the cockpit, especially like seeing from the from the, oh, yeah. the guy who's dying's point of view. Yeah, where he's dressed like the Daft Punk guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> there still was this aspect of I was almost too disengaged by what I bought a ticket to see that by the time I was seeing what I bought a ticket to see, I wasn't as yahoo rah-rah as I thought I might have been. I watched Firefox again about three years ago. I ended up picking up a, a, a print of the film because I, we show a lot of Eastwood stuff at the New Beverly. And so I, I picked it up and I watched it and I was like, holy shit, this is really good storytelling. Now, the film's very silly. All the characters are crazy hokey. You know, so, I, I I can only make so much of it. But a, sometimes in a good way, like Freddie Jones. Is, yeah. Well, no, no, he, he's not hokey. He's absolutely terrific. All right. You know, more, it's more all the Russian characters are very hokey. But characters aside and, and, and aspects aside, just the storytelling of the spy stuff, I think is really, really charming. And again, one of those things where you compare modern movies to then – they wouldn't tell the story this way now. They would, they would, they would cut corners. They would add montages. They would just move everything along. You'd and, see the airplane three or four times before yes, we do it now. Yes, and nothing would mean anything. At least, at least not his journey. Now, the film is very hokey because basically what Eastwood is doing is he's doing a caught behind enemy lines espionage World War II movie. Yeah, where you're. You know, you're you're in. They're Nazi. almost playing Nazis. Yeah, yeah. The, well, they the, are the, playing the, Nazis. the British people playing Russians are doing Nazi accents. The, yeah, <laughs> they're like, uh, uh, you know. So whether you're in Nazi-occupied France or if you're in Berlin doing your all those George Sanders movies, this is basically that. Yeah. Uh, except uh, given a Cold War twist by making them Russians, Eastwood does a fairly good job doing a cheap version of Russia for for what they're trying to sell as Russia. However, having said that, it's a little disconcerting they don't take the Russian stuff more seriously. I mean, 
if you watch Paul Mazursky's Moscow on the Hudson, mm-hmm. if you watch 2010, if you watch Russia House, they take the Russian stuff seriously. Hardly any Russians are in this movie. It's basically it's weird. a whole bunch of British actors talking with marbles in their yeah. mouths, and, and, all right, doing phony Russian accents. Possibly a few Germans. And some Germans who are not doing a Russian accent at all. Yeah, they're, 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 they're just, just doing German, a German accent. They're just doing yeah. German accents. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, one of the things also that's actually kind of charming about it now is there is something charming to go back to the 80s when there was this Cold War, us versus the Ruskies. Us versus them. What's such warm, comfortable times those were. And the fact that we actually thought that Russia could defeat us, not only defeat us, take us over one day, you know? Yeah, that Red Dawn could happen. Yeah, there was this, uh, you know, uh, I remember Howard Rosenberg, who was like the TV critic for the Los Angeles Times, wrote, uh, how can a country that makes Dukes of Hazzard the number one TV show in America ever hope to beat the Russians? <laughs> with Dukes of Hazard is the answer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with, yeah. With the General Lee. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got the Russians literally filling in for the Nazis. And apparently when it comes to Jewish persecution, the, the Russians are picking up right where the Nazis left off Completely. in this movie. Uh, the lead guy for the KGB who's after them is uh, uh, Ken Russell regular uh, named... Uh, uh, Kenneth Coley. He's in The Music Lovers. He's in The Devils. He's in Mahler. He plays Chopin in Lizomania. Yep. He's great in Lizomania. And he's, uh, yeah, and he's basically, he's the, you know, he's, he's the KGB officer who's assigned to protect the Firefox. He's like baby Nicole Williams. He looks, well, yeah, he looks, he looks like <laughs> Nicole Williamson's low rent younger brother. Yeah. He's Ernie Williamson. <laughs> but uh, his KGB guy is basically a Gestapo guy. He's clicking his heels Every time he turns and stares off, you know, into a void <laughs> to give a monologue. The KGB acting like the Gestapo is what you want in a Us versus the Ruskies yeah. movie. But then there's all the contacts that Eastwood meets along the way. And they're the really hokey ones. OK, so there's Warren Clark, who's played the, the, the pudgy van driver, who's got almost too big a part from and, uh, from Clockwork Orange. Orange he's like Billy the, Boy yeah uh, <laughs> no not Billy Boy I'm sorry uh, Dim, Dim, Dim 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 yeah uh, so uh, he's in I had just seen Hawk the Slayer uh, a couple days earlier and he's in Hawk the Slayer I can only really think well. of one other movie uh, he's in Hawk the Slayer He's. I know he's in Ishtar I know he's in this yeah and okay but you also have uh, uh, Roland Lacey who's the, the Peter Laurie character from uh, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. You have Nigel Hawthorne, the the guy, the, the dead guy, the guy who dies in uh, uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, he's in there. Yeah, so, like I said, you have all these British actors playing Russians, all acting with marbles in their mouth. Nobody's accent's the same. It's just kind of all over the place. Add to the fact that you have Clint Eastwood, who has no character in the movie. But that, no, that's not so bad for Eastwood. Eastwood, at that time especially, could score without a character. Well, he has a very cardboard character. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but I mean, there's no, there's no meat on its bones, but that's okay. Eastwood could score without a character because Eastwood always knew who he was and what his function in this particular movie is. PTSD is his character. Yeah. And uh you know and you know and he looks good in the suit and and you know, you, you want him to, you want him to do everything. However, they make the whole thing about the fact that you know he was I think he was born in Russia at the very least his mother is Russian and she raised him in Russian. And then when it turns out that he has to be able to think in Russian, he can do it. 
Because the whole thing is uh, 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 the missiles are, are controlled by the pilot's thoughts. You never even, they kill. You never even have to hit a button. You just think it's destroyed. But he has to think in Russian. Now, it's a little ridiculous in the movie because you would think that that would be brought up much earlier. That would kind of be a deal breaker, frankly. All right? But we're not revealed until uh, Nigel Hawthorne decides to tell you what's going on. And then that was the time in the theater where the whole audience laughed. Yeah. It was a bad laugh. It laughed because it was ridiculous that he would not be told that till now. And it's ridiculous to think that Eastwood can think in Russian. Because well, he has he has shown no facility with the Russian language in the movie thus far. And there's one time. Only one where, moment in Russian. And there's only one moment where he actually has to say a couple of Russian phrases when he's passing by uh, a checkpoint. Yeah. And he's so lousy saying it, you can't believe it's in the movie. Yeah, yeah. Especially in the movie where they're where they're obviously supposed to be speaking Russian, but they're speaking English. So why they would actually have him say Russian so badly? Yeah, in that it, one moment doesn't make any sense. It breaks the reality of the movie completely. Yeah. It breaks the reality that never existed, but now it's now it's for sure. Yeah. You just assumed Eastwood wouldn't be able to well, do this. You now just, you know for a fact he can't. When you have something ridiculous or when you have a lie to tell, you just tell it really big. And so this whole idea of thinking Russian, they just needed to make a bigger deal out of it. The reason he's selected is because his mother is Russian. So they should have said, listen, the way this thing's work, it's a it's a brain wave reader implant the first language we're, we're born with that we learn, our mother tongue, our first tongue, is your primal language. And, uh, and they needed to, like, in some way make that a thing, like mm. make it bigger. You know, it's a kind of fallacy that helped plug me into the idea of Inglorious Bastards. Firefox is a good example, but another good example is where eagles dare. The whole thing is that... Um, Eastwood and he's supposed and, to actually be German. Yeah, well, he's a Canadian in it. Yeah, actually, yeah. But, but he speaks German. But, but yeah, well, that's the idea: is the fact that both he's raised, uh, I think, Richard in Richard Burton and uh, Eastwood speak German so well that they can put on Nazi officers' uniforms and just hang around in, in taverns and talk to anybody and get away with it. And because English is supposed to be German, then we just all buy it. But I remember watching that and thinking. If the actors literally had to speak German, that would be interesting. How would they pull it off? That would be, to me, this is a whole level of suspense that's dispensed with, with this, okay, now we're officially speaking Russian or German, but we're actually just speaking English. You know, that was a thing to bring into Inglorious Bastards. Oh, well, if they're going to have to do that, that is going to be a suspense piece. Use it as a device. That's a that's a thing. And I have to find actors that can that can speak German. The only time I've ever seen sort of what I call the unified field theory of uh, language in movies was Hunt for Red October. Mm -hmm. That moment where the camera zooms in on his mouth and then they switch during the reading of the poem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, from uh, Russian into English. From that moment on, it's like, boom, he solved the problem that had plagued filmmakers for, yeah. you know, since the dawn of cinema. I agree. But in the situation of both Firefox, Where Eagles Dare, and Inglorious Bastards, the pulling off of the language is the undercover job. That's part of the mission itself. Right. Then it gets to the first time that we actually see the Firefox. And it's fantastic. It almost took my breath away. Not because the plane was so 
magnificent, even though the plane was pretty fucking cool. Well, that life-size mock-up is But wonderful. that life-size mock-up was amazing. Yeah. And it works. I mean, they're going to, they, they, they wheel it out. Yeah. It, it, it had a, it had a feeling. It had a, it had a, ooh, that I didn't feel the first time at the movie theater. And also that design at that time period of, mm-hmm. for an airplane to yeah. look like that when we were just starting to experiment with mm-hmm. like stealth airplanes yeah. and things like that. It, it was like, I mean, that was the sort of thing that we were told to be afraid of, of now, the Russians, yeah. is this kind of technological advancement and that then we the, were trying to do. Okay, so then he steals the airplane. Now, look, I will admit that even back in 82 when I saw the movie, and I'm, I've am i worked with John Dykstra quite a bit, and I'm the biggest John Dykstra fan, and whenever John Dykstra works with me, I'm starstruck the entire time I'm around him. Well, yeah, he's a superstar. He's a superstar. Having said that, Back in 82, I thought this Firefox dogfight stuff was uh, a little chintzy. Well, it's it's looking like Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. I mean, if I'm honest. It, yeah, the, mov- the movie is playing this kind of dark, ludlum realism, and then suddenly you're in Battlestar Galactica. Now, the thing about it, I mean, what was probably really, really difficult for him is the thing that we take for granted, is the fact that it's taking place in Earth's atmosphere. And the fact that you know he's got to get all those trees and all that land mass and all that water reflected in the mm-hmm. cockpit windows, reflected in the, in the visor of the helmets yeah. and, and everything. But the part that really works is when it cuts to the ground and when, when, when he's flying low and you see the effect the Firefox has on the water when it flies by the water or on the earth and it just like rips it like it's like two plows. Yeah. Like two supersonic plows yeah. are just cutting through a forest. Yeah. And, or, or when it's going through the ocean or it's kicking up snow and it's just yeah. like the the, uh, the afterburners are just blowing this stuff up. And it looks That like, stuff is thrilling. Oh, it looks like they went out into the ocean and set charges, uh-huh. long you know, rows of charges and then exploded them in sequence and then composited the plane in mm-hmm. and you see that and you look at the attention to detail and yeah. the care that mm-hmm. went into creating that composite shot mm-hmm. and it really no, is it's, beautiful it's, it's craftsmanship and it, again it's it, it, it's not a bunch of uh, dorks fucking around with a computer that says mat lines and they're you know these are filming things this is handmade yeah there even is an, an interesting aspect to the chase itself because part of the thing about the the film is there's a there's a prototype for Firefox that's not mounted with weapons. And so the idea is to blow up the prototype. And during that confusion, that's when Eastwood will steal the jet. Um, but they do all that, but they don't destroy the prototype. So they're able to take the pilot who was supposed to go up in Firefox and they mount weapons on it and they send it after him. Now, the way it's set up, he can be fueled in midair and you can't. Yeah. So the whole problem- That gives with the, him a jump of Yeah, like the whole problem with the first half of the race that, that, that Eastwood has to deliver is he can't fly Firefox out full on at Mach 5. He has to stay at Mach 2 so he doesn't piss away his gasoline. Mm-hmm. And he's got to fly low. low. He's got to do everything he can to not just crash in the Ar- yeah. Arctic waters. He's got to fly low to the Ural Mountains uh, yeah. you know, to make his way up to the Arctic so, Circle. Yeah, so when he gets to the Arctic Circle and once he gets gasoline in him, now he can just go balls out. Yeah, and then we really see Firefox going crazy. Yeah, then yeah, but, <laughs> but, but the whole first three quarters of the trip to get out of Russian airspace, he has to be in like second gear and he can't get out of second gear. Then this movie has its second coolest bit once Eastwood takes it. 
And that is when the kind of uh, Boris Yeltsin Brezhnev guy, uh, his name is uh, Stefan uh, Schnabel. Yeah. Uh, a, a career playing Russians. Yeah, yeah, well, he looks like Boris Yeltsin. So, of course, he has yeah. a career playing Russians. <laughs> All right. uh, he's like the secretary. And then I, I actually had forgotten this part in the movie, even though they built the tra- they built a lot of the TV spots around it. I am speaking to the pilot who has stolen a jet airplane. <laughs> going to ask you to, kindly, I'm going to ask you to return it. First, I ask you. <laughs> and, then Eastwood, and Eastwood actually says the only good line Eastwood has. And so then, um, then we'll just forget about it? <laughs> I would not lie to you that blatantly. What I will say is you will be alive. <laughs> You'll be allowed to live. <laughs> because you will die if you... Keep going. But but the the problem with that, that guy is so good and he's such a great villain and he has a rapport with Eastwood, but by then they've thrown away Nicole Williamson Jr. Yeah, no, no. That's where it starts getting wonky. Okay, because the German actor is the guy oh. named uh, 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 Claude uh, 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 Loaded-ish. He's given the job where everybody else is the doubting Thomas about Eastwood's ability. All right, he's the guy, he's the... The smart Russian that realizes that Eastwood could probably pull this off. Oh, no, but what? If we're yeah. better to do so, so, that. So he's the balding <laughs> map pointer outer who must babble the endless counter pursuit tactics in an accent that is damn close to unintelligible. I mean, <laughs> I mean <laughs> he's the one saying all the counter pursuit tactics and you don't understand a fucking thing he says. Send up, they're the plan. Yeah, we literally, <laughs> this guy's got to do all the talking. Forget about the fact that he sounds German. He doesn't sound Russian, but he's just, he's just, we, we started to think. He sounds like, like Elmer Fudd. He does sound like Elmer Fudd, <laughs> yeah, like a German Elmer Fudd. And like why they give all of that exposition and all of that, like, something that, you it want, becomes his movie all of a sudden. Yeah, because you want either the, the Brezhnev guy to be talking this way, the Boris Yeltsin guy to be talking this way, or Bring back Kenneth Coley. Yeah. Bring back Nicole Williams Jr. All right, Ernie Williams. All right, bring back the low rent younger brother. <laughs> well, it would have also made sense. I mean, it's a it's a real drag that he's thrown out of the movie. Well, after it, Eastwood, uh, it would have uh, also escaped. made a lot more sense if the Russian military guys were like, um, "Oh no, we got him, we got him, no problem, we got him." And the premier guy who kind of knows, you know, Eastwood's character more, well, he's like, no, no, from- we don't have him. He's the one who believes he's the, yeah. not the military who's not guy. He's just coming from a military point of view. He's coming from a more psychological, you know, he, he has other fish to fry than just the military where, you know, uh, uh, to a hammer, everything looks and like a nail. And even thematically to an American audience, then the idea of, well, the Russian military might not like, you know, is like operating said, at a different level than the And premier. like we said, he, he, well, like that one little moment that he talks to Eastwood on the, uh, on the microphone, he has a connection with him. Yeah. That's actually a lie. And you want that to continue. You want that connection. You want yeah. that personal touch between the two. I think the movie has fan Fantastic exposition. All the exposition scenes are so much fun. You must be talking about Freddie Jones. And I'm talking about Freddie Jones. Yeah, he's... Freddie Jones is like... He deserves an award in this one. So (laughs) ridiculously hammy, yet that's who you want to deliver big exposition. And the exposition is fun. Yeah, and why why he's the one who's working for the Americans as their advisor. (laughs) All the description of what Firefox can do is really fun. Yeah. It's really exciting. I mean, you have to always understand, it's almost crazy that the film tries to get a little realistic in the Eastwood behind enemy line stuff. Yeah. Because everything beforehand 
is so incredibly preposterous. One, that the Russians would be able to build Firefox in the first place. It would probably bankrupt Russia, all right, if they if they built two, two Firefoxes. It's long been an American fear. Like, you know, yeah. Hunt for Red October is mm-hmm. also a submarine with baffles, you know. it's yeah. And so, okay, the fact that a jet airplane would change the balance of power between the two countries. Yes, if Russia were to mass produce Firefox, that would be it, meaning the balance of power would be completely tipped over. They would never be able to mass produce Firefox. <laughs> I'm serious. Russia was didn't have money at that time. They would have bankrupted themselves making two. Forget about <laughs> mass production. America can mass produce it. Russia never could. Uh, again, but that's almost like a time machine aspect about it at all. Yeah. When we actually thought Russia had enough money to beat us even at our own game. Well, if you just pretend, <laughs> if you were to make this movie today, just pretend it's China. Mm-hmm. Pretend it's the hypersonic scramjet that they yeah. just. Uh, yeah. They um, did not have a Howard Hughes in Russia. They did not have a Lockheed. <laughs> they did not have a TRW. They didn't have any of these things. <laughs> you know, you mentioned um, the whole PTSD aspect of this movie, the behind enemy lines mm-hmm. aspect of it, which is, you know, Eastwood's character has been, presumably it's Vietnam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's kind of like a. He's a Vietnam vet. He's been a pilot. He's been shot, he shot down. Shot down. In fact, he's been shot down in a situation almost identically similar to Admiral James Stockdale, mm-hmm. who's shot down over enemy lines, ends up spending seven years at the Hanoi Hilton. Um, and I got to know him really, really well. And so it seems I, like a, it seems like a weird mix of James Stockdale and Chuck Norris. <laughs> yeah, and Chuck Norris. Well, I mean, and, and these these are popular movies at this time. And then while he's in captivity and about to be taken to, you know, some hell, hell he's the, 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 the rat, the, uh, yeah, the, 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 rat water, the, the rat infested water torture place yeah, he's of, about de, to ex- of deer hunter. Yeah. yeah, he's about to experience <laughs> Mao, Mao, go sing Mao, Mao. <laughs> he's about to experience that pleasure. Yeah. Well, Michael, there's all these rats in here. <laughs> Which is John Savage saying, Michael Cimino, there's yeah. all these rats in here. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's true. There's all these rats in here. Yeah. There's really rats in Michael, here. Michael, there's all these rats in here. <laughs> <laughs> Use it. Use them. That's your tool. That's well, your, just so those hap- are, that's your it just so tool. happens that Robert De Niro's character's named Michael, too, so they were able to keep <laughs> it. It worked out fine. Was it like Roger? Oh, there's all these rats in here. <laughs> One of my problems with that is, and they keep using this as like, this is his kryptonite. Yeah. This is his weakness. Whenever anything happens, like, you know, the the helicopters are landing to give him the mission. He has a PTS moment. Uh, whenever anything stressful happens, he's about to take off the Firefox and he's in a shower beforehand, you know, uh, kind of yeah. dressing up as the pilot in the, this crazy red tile shower. In this like... Super amazing yeah. shower from like, Russia from, 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 from Icelandic <laughs> spa. Yeah, it's an amazing like with a special tile job yeah. and everything. It's like really he's in there and he's having like PTSD. It's like the alarms are going off and everything. Yeah. Okay. So this is supposed to be his kryptonite. This is supposed to be what yeah. like stops him. And even at the final moment when he's in the airplane, suddenly he's got another bout of PTSD where he's seeing the little girl's face and uh, he's free falling. Uh, yeah, free falling and unable to kind of do anything until he comes out of it. Well, mm-hmm. because he's a pilot, 
And because it was Vietnam, he could have been a pilot in Vietnam, and he could have been somebody who was sent into a you know, fly and fly, you know, blow up the carpet bomb, carpet bomb, the Keysong Delta, or something like that. And he mm-hmm. goes in, he does his job, but he, he drops bombs knowing that there's a village of people mm-hmm. there. You don't have to go full missing in action. That would be enough, I think, for him to say, "I don't want to fly again." I definitely don't want to fly a combat plane. I don't want to drop bombs on people. I don't want to drop napalm on people. I'm still traumatized by this. That seems like that would have been enough. I, I, I feel like the connection between the airplane and the trauma becomes removed at that point. Yeah, I agree with that. Like many things in the movie, it's a hokey device. And the, and the, more, they, the more they emphasize it, the hokier it gets. Well, and the fact that at the very end, at the, you know, like he's been firing missiles with his brain and f- using this thing to fly around, no problem. Like they've made this big deal out of it. You know, you've got to think in Russian, but they really only use that device at the very, very end, when he's got to fire the derriere missile or whatever they call it. I almost yeah, yeah, think yeah. he says it in French. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, I heard yeah. I heard French. I uh-huh. heard him say derriere. <laughs> well, yeah, I think he, the missile derriere he or something fires like some that. missiles before. I think he just gets he gets excited. So he, yeah, he starts thinking in out, English. He yeah. says it out loud yeah. so that we can Why hear Why is it working? <laughs> but, <laughs> but if God damn it. If he had been unable to engage those early missiles. Yeah, yeah. And then, like, really had to dig deep to his primal self, his childhood self, who spoke in Russian. Well, to be able to do it, then, like, they would have, like, as it was, it was just sort of like they just left it until well, the very well, end. Well, of the, what are the, well, one of the other awkward things about away. the movie is its abrupt ending. You're not quite. I, I remember that in the theater. People were like, okay, and then uh, yeah, uh, I guess it's over. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was expecting them to land. I'd see David Huffman again. Yeah. Freddie oh. Jones was, you know, <laughs> he did it, my boy. You know, but no, it's just, it's over. We're done. We're done. What I do love mm-hmm. about the movie is how brutal it is. Like, like for instance, they, they, he plays a replacement of a drug dealer. Like his character yeah, yeah. is replacing somebody who's a drug dealer. Yeah. And they get that actual drug dealer. And then they beat him to death with a with a hammer. Yeah, with like a hammer. Like that that uh, dim guy from Clockwork Orange. Yeah, just yeah. beats the fucking life out of the guy and throws him into the water. And, cl- and Eastwood is like mortified. He's like, oh my God, what are you doing? You can't believe it. No, he it. actually, no, I actually like the whole thing that he doesn't I trust. I love it. that. He doesn't trust his handlers for a while because he just saw them murder somebody. Like, hey, something. They don't just beat him. Eastwood Eastwood allows there to be like an additional shot of the guy going in and make double tapping. You know, let's make sure the guy's dead. And then, (laughs) and then later, yeah. Then he's then then the 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 truck driver that he's he's supposed to with the pudgy van driver Warren Clark, the Clark or Orange guy, uh, who's the. You know, he's the sensitive Russian. He's the, you know, he's the... The good Russian. Yeah. In, in, in I'm a doing way, it for my wife. His his normal truck driving partner is just like, don't go into work today. And so Eastwood is like, this guy's is, is now got the phony identity of this of this truck driver. And so the KGB just goes and gets the truck driver out of bed. And then they proceed to beat him to death in actually a scene so violent. Yeah. It stayed with me for the next half hour in the movie. Yeah, I... I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And then I, and then that moment where the guy's like, but you told me, like, oh, now you've killed him. But you told me too. It's your fault. Yeah. <laughs> like, but then they show that guy's face. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just disfigured. Oh, also, but he's like, he's, he's Johnny Handsome all of a sudden. He's beating him to death with these, like, crazy leather gloves, you yeah. know? And then they go, but you told me to beat him. And then, like, you know, the uh, Kenneth Coley basically, Schweinhut! <laughs> just slaps him upside the head. <laughs> and so, like, the, the fact that you were in this, like, hard-boiled kind of reality mm-hmm. 
that's actually what I had forgotten about the movie and Look, what I loved about the movie. Like, like to me, the hokey stuff doesn't take away from the fun of the movie because there's a hokey quality to the Cold War anyway, back then in the 80s. And there's a hokey quality to the us versus the Russians kind of movie anyway. So I'm kind of OK with all that. But, you know, the strongest thing about the movie is all the exposition scenes that both David Huffman and then the other actors playing the generals, and especially Freddie Jones has. They're just enjoyable. Freddie Jones is amazing. It's the, be- it's in the this best movie. dialogue in the whole movie is the He's exposition. So scenes. much fun to watch in this movie. He's so much fun. But now, okay, so this is a science fiction film. But this came out in the summer of 82, mm-hmm. July of 82. I think what has gone easily goes down now as the greatest sci-fi summer of all time. This is what came out the same summer. The summer. Same summer as as, as Firefox. Only in the summer. E.T. Oh, my God. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Oh, wow. I actually think John Carpenter's The Thing opened on the same day as Firefox. Yeah, that makes sense. Blade Runner. Wow. Tron. Yeah. Road Warrior. Yeah. The sci-fi summer of all time. Yeah. We were so, so spoiled. <laughs> <laughs> we were so spoiled. Okay. Didn't know how good we had it. I'm going to read from the LA Reader, the review of Firefox. And you're reading from an actual LA Reader that is yellowed. Yes, I am. It is like those people that live in a hoarder house that have newspapers <laughs> up to the ceiling. Hey, Quentin hey, has hey. LA readers. Hey, I, res- <laughs> I, res- I resemble that remark. <laughs> okay, this is uh, David Esterstein. Taking the form of a spy adventure thriller, this feature-length salute to the Reagan administration's resumption of the Cold War is clearly designed to encourage select numbers of the unemployed to believe that a brighter future awaits inside the cockpit of one of those shiny new bombers middle-income taxpayers are presently paying through the nose for. Okay, we're already... Wow. This is starting Already he's politicizing his such review. such a political point <laughs> for such a hokey... Yeah. Ridiculous movie. But try as it might, this pinhead programmer never gets off the ground. The Russians, according to producer-director star Clint Eastwood and his cohorts, are now so far advanced of the United States that they've got a super bomber whose capabilities threaten to, gasp, shift the balance of world power. The only way to turn the tide is to steal the plane out from under them. And ex-Vietnam vet Clint is, you guessed it, the only man for the job. Not since Frank Lovejoy stopped being a communist for the FBI has so much blatant propaganda hogged a movie screen. The difference is that Firefox is nowhere near as entertaining as such McCarthy-era delights as Women on Pier 13 or Shack Out on 101. Well, I will admit, it's not as good as Shack Out on 101. That is a terrific movie. Uh, It's a long trek through spy routines that look like Disney rewrites of John LeCare before reaching a finale whose special effects aren't likely to draw the masses away from the likes of Asteroids or Donkey Kong. Wow, that's a really brutal... Uh... Yes. But it also, it, it's, it shows its politicalness to such a degree yeah. that it almost can be discounted. He wears it, which, which actually leads me to ask, Quentin, would you, I mean, this is Eastwood making this, and we know where Eastwood is politically. Is this personal propaganda or is this corporate propaganda? I mean, no, it's I, a studio I, film. I think it's popcorn propaganda. 
popcorn propaganda. Yeah, it's just, it was a, but it's being made by a studio and it's fulfilling a it's kind a, of It's a fun, I, I, he, he doesn't buy this Russians as Nazis. He's making a programmer. He's making, it, it's a good idea. That's why we all went and saw it on the opening weekend. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, it's, it's, pop, it's popcorn propaganda. I don't think it had, he has, there's no real dog on this fight. At least not towards Russia, which is one of his biggest markets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I also have one of my favorite critics, Jim Sheldon, who uh, wrote for the Porno Rag, the Hollywood Press, in the June 25th, 1982 edition. Firefox is a misfire. An intriguing premise, an emotionally scarred pilot is seduced out of self-imposed Alaska retirement to enter Russia and nab a prototype plane with Mach 5 speed through thought-control-powered weapons and anti-radar extras. Is blown through over-length, 138 minutes, overly dark lensing, and overwrought commie accents from an international cast. Yeah, well, they got it right there. Not to mention over-exposition and underutilized special effects of extreme unevenness, supervised by John Dykstra, who was ripping off his own Star Wars dogfight best work. Sorry, Clintus. Stay minus. He called him Clintus? Yeah. He's being <laughs> an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Which was Jim Sheldon's want. <laughs> <laughs> So, Gala, what do you think? Privet comrades. <laughs> Sorry, guys, this is a snooze fest for me. Uh, there was so much exposition, and at the beginning of it, I kind of enjoyed the exposition. But it takes way too long to get to the plane. I felt let down by the very quick ending, and by the time they got to the plane, I was really bored. I don't know why the Russian pilot doesn't just think in Russian. He knows Russian. I don't know why he, Clint Wood has an upper hand on him somehow. I don't really get it. And why is there no discussion of Clint Eastwood's character's past at all while he's going through Russia? You mean before? Like, Just while he's going through Russia being taken from well, one place you're talking place about how long no, his the past, movie is. Or you, you want, you no, want 20 no, minutes no, no, more no. of his, his past that he was his born in Russia. His past that he was born in Russia. Like anything to give me any kind to, of I clue. Don't, I don't well, need but to know. That, but you're, you're always questing for the character, you know, a character and their past. And like, I there's said he doesn't it. have a character in this. But, right. he, but he does. And they ignore it is the point. Like the idea that he had a mother in Russia. Maybe his mother's still in Russia, for example. Like, that's, that's something that could have been mined and used. Like, they could have used his... You are all adding to the 138 <laughs> minutes. Well, Clinton, there's lots of stuff I could cut out of there, that's for sure. Next, the PTSD is plot-based, not character-based. Yes. He has no growth whatsoever over the film through his PTSD. They only bring it up when they just want him to take a pause. I felt like they only brought up his PTSD when they didn't want him in the scene. Like when they had the big explosion, he's in the shower taking this like 30 minute long, nice spot. Nah, that's, that's, 
That's a plot point. He's the guy. I got to take a three hour shower. Yes. <laughs> okay. That, that's, and this amazing. I'm, look, I'm buying what you're selling, but you can't use false equivalents. <laughs> that's just how I feel. No, it's, it's, feel. it's a plot point. He's got to kill. Yeah, but that he has point, to kill three hours. That was a shoehorn plot point to like, let's jam that in. Man, so no, it's it. actually one of the more realistic ones because all this shit's not going to happen on a fucking timetable. He must have been really pruny when he got into that airplane. That's into the that point. Suit. He actually says, <laughs> I got to take a shower. You, do with the hide in the fucking air vent, but hang out for three fucking hours <laughs> and be ready to get in the goddamn suit when I say. <laughs> and just lastly, I just feel like in this movie, Clint Eastwood's character needed something besides the United States of America to fight for. I feel like the opening of this movie reminds me of Arnold Schwarzenegger in Commando, which I really enjoy that movie. But Arnold Schwarzenegger has his daughter that he's fighting for. What does Clint Eastwood have? All he is in this movie is a tool. His PTSD is proof of that. He's just a tool of the American government. They never shed any character growth or inkling that he understands that. And he doesn't have anything to fight for. He has no wife, no mother, no child. He's, just he's fighting there. for America. He's trying to stop Look, the balance a, of power. That sounds patriot, very boring. As a patriot <laughs> to the United States of America, just doesn't cut it for me. Look, I, I, I find that vaguely disingenuous. So your last point, all right, for the simple fact, and I'm not saying you're being disingenuous per se, because I actually believe you believe it, but the thing is, so um, everybody who bought a ticket to see the movie is down with the mission because we knew what the mission was. That's why we bought a ticket to see the movie. So I don't think I needed anything more than he's stealing the plane for America. Oh, you mean like, but like, so it doesn't have to be personal in any way. I don't think it had it to be. Where I don't agree with Gala is she's coming from where everybody else was coming from when the yeah. film came out. Uh, it was like, enough of this. I'm just not into it. This is just too long and draggy and, and, and sluggish. I didn't feel that way. But did you feel that way upon first viewing? Of course I did. I so absolutely did. maybe it's did. just because I, it's my first viewing. I'm a 26-year-old girl <laughs> watching on my computer. Yeah. And it's like, and that's that'll the, do it. The thing is, they say, Clint Eastwood, we need you. You're the best man for the job. I just don't see why he is. Yeah, he's got problems. He has problems. He has no character growth whatsoever. When they first meet him, him. he's non-functional. He's okay. sitting there gripping a shotgun, sweating, unable to like, no, 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 no. pull I, himself into no, reality. No, 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 no. You would think that that would disqualify him from the mission <laughs> when they're actually looking at him. They're standing at They're looking at him. Are you okay? What the fuck? <laughs> what the fuck's right. wrong with you, dude? <laughs> he's like shivering in the fucking corner naked, practically. <laughs> uh, but having said that, I uh, uh, yeah, I, I actually did think the spy aspect, the Robert Ludlum aspect of it, John LeCare aspect of it, actually worked. And like I said, I enjoyed the storytelling of it. I actually thought there was actually there was a commitment to storytelling direction. And I, frankly, to tell you the truth, I don't see enough storytelling direction. I see bad storytelling if or no storytelling at all. So to actually see somebody who actually, a director who actually tells the story well, that's becoming a dodo bird. <laughs> well, on my viewing of this with you, Quentin, um, I, I mean, I kind of felt the same way. Like I was much more accepting of this Ludlum uh, human package being delivered mm -hmm. person to person to person to person to person to person, like, you know, so many yeah. links of a chain until he finally gets there. And he's kind of And then all the horrible violence you see during it. And the horrible and, violence and, and how he's that, reacting to it. There's a terrific fight scene in the, uh, in the bathroom where he just batters the guy to death. He oh, just, yeah. he, I mean, he just like, he just 
bashes his head in. Well, and Eastwood is one of those guys who even as an old man, and I like that he's an, like playing it as like, I'm an old man in this, even mm. though he's as ripped as anybody. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like when he's well, shirtless there in the water at the beginning. No, he's a Rodin sculpture. Yeah, but when you <laughs> see Eastwood like beating a guy up, mm-hmm. man, it looks like Eastwood could beat that guy up. Oh, no, he's like, <laughs> like Eastwood I mean, is going to be like six pile driving shots to yeah, the face bam, in a row. Bam. Yeah, it looks real. No, he looks like bash his fucking head. In. Yeah. And so, <laughs> Which um, he does. and so I actually like, on this viewing of the movie, I allowed myself to get into it. And then, frankly, and I felt a little bit like Jim Sheldon there when I saw, listen, and you know I love Dykstra, but when when we went from that Ludlum, darkly lit, crushed blacks yeah. cinematography and moving from place to place, travel logs. Yeah, Bruce Surtees, the, 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 the yes, king, king, yeah, Bruce Surtees, king of, king of darkness. Yeah, yeah, and he is the king of darkness because everything is crushed, black, 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 black. The yeah. darks are dark. The night is night. Mm-hmm. And you go from that to, you know, Dykstra, who's making his own movie on the side yeah, <laughs> at right, the yes. meantime. <laughs> and he's making it, you know, he's doing every, he's having a blast. It's a different movie he's making. Yeah, yeah. I don't like it any less necessarily, mm-hmm. but it's a different movie. And and that's a tonal shift that's kind of a little funky you know, to, to take once you get into the air and, and you're just rolling with it. Look, I just think it's, we're, we're responding to the intricacies of the human spy story. So, like, you're asking for more human touches, and I think they're there, but they're there in the cloak and dagger aspect of the spy story rather than backstory. Yeah, and I also, I did enjoy the movie exposition-wise and him being handed off up until he's in the van being driven. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I kind of just lost it. I got bored. I was like, where's the airplane? You were just too much. I was just too much. You'd been shuttled from one person to another too much. We had a funny thing when we were watching it because uh, they stay with uh, a... Warren Clark's pudgy van driver. Like, there's actually a, a, a weird little chase that happens uh, where, where they, they send the KGB to stop them. That, on on one hand, it's, it's not a great chase, but on the other hand, it seems like a realistic chase to some degree. Uh, but he ends up he ends up killing the uh, KGB guys in a very convenient way, but he ends up getting shot at the same time. So he crashes the van, and then you see him making his way. And he's like wounded and you just came and they're, they're sending dogs. And climbing sending through barbed wire fences and, and, and trees and climbing up mountains. And then they're, and the uh, uh, KGB cops or, or just Russian cops and dogs are after him and after him. And then Roger goes, well, it's really kind of interesting that they're, uh, you know, following this guy's story, you know, to, to such a degree, you know. It's this kind of uh, compassion, you know, that they, they're following his story this way. As if we care. Yeah. <laughs> and then I said, well, it's... it's his story will either link up to something larger or they're just miscalculating how much we care about this fucking guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they, and, it did, and it did link up. It did link up. And I have to say, I kind of like that moment. I won't say, I won't, I won't ruin what the moment is, but when they did, but when, his fulfillment but when Firefox and the pudgy van driver actually are connected together, that worked. It's corny, but it worked. And, the, and one of the reasons it works is because that actor, I'm sure he's the one who went out and said, I need something. I need a wife. Yeah. I, I didn't, uh, like he needs what Clint Eastwood doesn't have, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is I need a wife that I'm doing this for. She's in a gulag I've, somewhere. I've done. I've spent the last seven years to proving to be worthy of her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's it for Firefox. <laughs> <laughs> Enough of Firefox. For anyone interested in seeing Firefox, it is available literally everywhere. I bought my VHS on eBay, a Warner Brothers copy, for $4.99. 
Video Archives bought theirs for $69.99. Right on. Okay, so now, as we wrap up the show, we have one more film that we're throwing into the- A little uh, bonus. A little bonus. Little beautifully putrid Uh. gem that that (laughs) came my way. Blew my fucking mind. I couldn't believe what I had just seen. Needed to have Roger see it. Yeah, calls me up and he's like, you, you got to come over. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to see this. The movie is called Delirium. Uh, we're not going to go into a whole big super thing on it because part of the thing about the movie is the script takes a few uh, left turns. And you should not know the left turns before you see it. And yeah, that is the charm of the movie. You, it is the charm of the movie. You think it's this. And then it's that. It's a regional It's a regional film made out of St. Louis, directed by a fellow named Peter Maris, uh, who ended up doing a lot of straight-to-video action movies. However, this actually played theatrically. How do I know? Because I almost saw it. If you're, if you're interested in checking out Delirium, I would recommend... Okay, well, I'll just read the back. Yeah, who, who, put until, that video, who put that tape out? And what, oh, what year was Delirium? Oh, yeah, okay, this is an Academy Home Video. Cheap company back then, but actually by the 90s, they were actually producing movies. Yeah. But I will read the first quarter of the back. Delirium. Charlie is a psycho. His twisted mind drives him to butcher beautiful young women. Tormented by his past, he brutally murders again and again. He must be stopped. But how? And then I stop. I didn't go to drive-ins that often. But at some point in the early 80s, uh, usually when I went to a drive-in on my own in the 80s, it was because usually because they were showing like a, some movie as a second feature that you couldn't find anywhere else. Or it was like a triple feature. So like three exploitation movies back to back. You know, uh, Sleepaway Camp and Brain Damage and Delirium. That, that actually might have been the triple feature, yeah. frankly, to tell you the truth. So I went to see them, and then Delirium was the third movie. And yeah, I'd never heard of it, but sounds like a horror film. And I started watching it, and it was the third film. It's like 11 o'clock, 11.30 at night. I was tired. And the movie looked like the same thing I'd seen a zillion times before. Just a maniac killer killing one woman after another and awkward cops discussing the case. So I uh, okay, fuck this shit. I'm gonna stay here for this, you know. So I, I drove drove away. When I'm watching Delirium, I did not recognize the title, but I recognized Charlie. So when I was watching the movie, <laughs> wait a minute, this is that drive-in movie. Once Charlie got, once Charlie stole the car, once Charlie stole the car, that's when I realized, oh, this is that movie. I walked out on this. I drove, I drove out. I drove <laughs> out on this. I drove out of the bottom of the the triple feature because I recognized Charlie. Your headlights on. You're going over all the bumps I, in the drive-in. Yeah, then I recognized like, the title. I recognized Charlie. And it was the driving scene. That was when I realized, holy shit. Little did I know how wrong I was yeah. by leaving the movie because I thought it would be one note. This is really a movie that if you're like out looking for it and you're listening to this right now and you're like, I'm going to look it up and I'm going to look up information on it. I mean, oh, yeah, yeah. You might not want to. Yeah, yeah. No, actually, there's a new Blu-ray of it that just came out. 
Do not read the back of it. Do not read any advertisements on it. Do not go to Letterboxd trying to find it. Because Don't the re- only reason to watch this movie is for these fantastic kind of tonal shifts. It's for this script to take you where you... moves It's for this script to take you places you don't expect to go. Yeah, it's the literally, oh, what? Like, I literally, I turned to you in the middle of this movie and I said, is this what I think it is? Okay, so (laughs) one of the reasons why the film is so surprising by the turns it takes is because... It's a woman-hating maniac on a rampage. Yeah, man runs amok. Yeah, so it's a—he's—it's not a slasher film. He's not the uh, slasher film character, nor is it a, a serial killer movie. He's not a serial killer per se, uh, and it's nothing realistic like you know. And it, nor is it, and even though he does have—he's a Vietnam veteran, so uh, and he's got problems. So he does have a <laughs> psychological aspect to why he's doing what he's doing. But they're not investing big time in the psychological aspect like Norman Bates or like the, the lead character in uh, Don't Go in the House, even though he has a psychological bit. Uh, he's just a woman-hating maniac killer on a rampage. He, he kills a woman. He walks down the street. He keeps going till he bumps into another woman. And then he kills her. And then he bumps into some other people. He kills them. He bumps into another woman. He kills her. Now, it just so happens that on this killer's path, they managed to find young gals wearing short shorts that, 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 that periodically show up every 20 minutes. <laughs> They're all blonde. It's a universe of blonde. Well, the people. hitchhiker's not blonde. Oh, yeah, I guess, yeah, the hitchhiker is uh, hitchhiker's a brunette. Brunette, uh, brunette. And the movie sets itself up that that is what it's going to be. So he's the killer is just going up, wiping out all these women. Uh, and then there's the cops. Yeah. That are like, who know that this killer is out there and they're starting their investigation. And there's a woman who who actually knows what he looks like, who kind of turns him on to who this guy is. And so now they got to protect her. But the thing about the murders that the guy is doing, one of the things I like about the murders is the fact that there is a real, I've used the word cynical and nihilistic in a bad way in talking about Moonraker. Here I'm using it in a good way. Because it's a nasty piece of work, the whole first 20 minutes in the movie. Because it's not trying to be a slasher film. It's not trying to be a maniac movie. It's not trying to be a serial killer movie. It has the feeling, it has the nastiness of an early 70s roughie about a killer. And what a roughie is were early X-rated movies that they came out with in the late 60s and the early 70s. That while they had a sexual vibe, they also had a violence vibe. Mm-hmm. They're actually emphasizing the misogyny of it. Now, I like that in this movie. I like the fact that it's that's rough. It's 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 tough. It's a little little queasy feeling. Yeah, it has that kind of like I spit on your grave aesthetic. Yeah, but even that's almost rough. too like no, yeah, yeah. Even that's a, a, a little on the higher end. But yes, you're right. <laughs> you're right. On the higher end. That is a little on the <laughs> yeah, higher no, end. No, you're right. But. One of the things I like about that in the terms of this movie, aside from just, I, you know, I, li- I like roughness like that, especially in violence, uh, is it also sets you up for the one note quality of the thing. Well, it's just going to be him just killing this one and this one and this one and these stupid cops trying to figure out who he is. And I've seen many movies. There, mm-hmm. That's the whole film. Yeah. When and it th- first started, I, my, what I was thinking in my head was, mm-hmm. 
why does Quentin think this is so special? Yes, exactly. It's like everything else. Okay. And, and I was kind of humoring you to be at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And I was just getting into the very good uh, practical gags that they do. Yeah, yeah. Which uh, for a little regional movie, low budget movie made well, the, at this the, time period. The killer, the killer is a guy named Charlie. He doesn't say a word in the whole film. I'm not saying the guy's giving a good performance, but he's effective. By sticking to his one-note performance, it accumulates. And the cops- like a grimy Michael Onkian or yeah, something. Yeah. Like. And, the, and the cops get better and better. A lot of these regional movies, they, they shoot them more or less in order. And you can see these untrained actors be awkward at the beginning, but you see them warming up to it. You see them getting better and better. You see them getting more comfortable being on camera, having a good time, kind mm-hmm. of getting into it. And- I actually ended up by mid movie. I ended up really liking those cops. I actually thought they were pretty good. Well, yeah, and I, I really liked the the lead girl in it too. But it's one note aspect of it is part of its effect because the movie has other fish to fry. It has more of a story to tell, which we cannot get into. Which we cannot get into because that's going to ruin your enjoyment of it. And which is so frustrating for me because those moments are so Well, that's, um, well, that's the stuff you want to get more in detail about. Yeah, and, and, and those are the things that absolutely make this movie 100% personal yeah. propaganda as opposed to yeah. corporate propaganda. And, it's, it, and it, it stays with you. It has something to say, this movie. Uh, and- Peter Maris does a really good job. I've never I'm, heard of Peter, Peter Maris. Who, who, who is he? Well, he well he ended up directing. This is his. First I mean, I know mo- it's a little regional movie, but this is his first movie. But he ends up directing quite a few movies uh, that go uh, uh, straight to videos, all leading up into the nineties. And uh, 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 I've watched the first half hour of one of them, kind of a big budget movie for him called Hangfire with. Jan Michael Vincent and Brad Davis and a whole slew of uh, uh, slumming supporting actors. And that's a pretty good movie. Well, one thing is kind of funny about uh, Peter Maris's later career is he's, he seems to stay on the same story. So it's like uh, one movie called, it's called Terror Squad is uh, a bunch of Libyan terrorists take over a nuclear power plant. And so like Chuck Connors has to stop them. Yeah, who else? <laughs> All right. And then this movie, Hangfire, a bunch of escaped convicts take over a town and Brad Davis, the sheriff, has to stop them. Yeah. Uh, then another one is uh, John Schneider. It's called Ministry of Vengeance. And John Schneider is a, a priest. And then a bunch of Arab terrorists kill his wife and he goes on a uh, rampage. That sounds great. <laughs> I would totally see that movie. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. That me sounds too. awesome. He has one with Linda Pearl and James Tolkien, you know, the, the bald yeah. guy from uh, uh, Top Gun. Yeah. I can't believe I'm going to give you guys a shot. Yeah, I, I'm yeah. saying both of you <laughs> to Top Gun, Gun, that guy. The guy is always rubbing his head. I can't and, believe I've got, I'm doing this. I can't believe i got to do this. <laughs> so it's like, uh, one, I can't wait to watch uh, uh, Hang Fire with Roger so we can actually watch Peter Maris with a budget and like like the closest thing he'll ever come to like a, a genuine Hollywood production. I don't think this is giving uh, too much away, but uh, and I think we already said it. Charlie is a Vietnam vet. Yes. And they have that great gag with the guy going on the hang. Well, okay, well, well, also one of the but, other things that makes me appreciate Delirium big time is one of the things that I love in cheap movies is cheap movies doing Vietnam flashbacks. Yeah. I I never do not like cheap movies doing Vietnam flashback and the cheaper, the better. Yeah. In the kind of brush outside of St. Louis. Yes. (laughs) That's Vietnam. Yes. Okay. So whether it's delirium or thou shall not kill, except. Except dot, dot, dot. Yeah. uh, uh, No, frankly, 
the only cheap movie to pull off uh, uh, a Vietnam flashback that actually is legit is Brotherhood of Death. Yeah. They have a really good Vietnam flashback. The thing about Delirium that is absolutely positively ridiculous is the entire story you hear about him the, the night before. Because you just see him as a raving lunatic that every woman he sees, he kills. But apparently the night before... He's like vibing with a girl and they're really hitting it off. And like he, he's partying with uh, her and her roommate. And like, who the fuck is that guy? What? And it never mentions what set him off to such a degree that now he's just, you know, he's just a Terminator on kill. <laughs> okay. I will mention one thing, a scene that doesn't give away anything. Um, because it's a pretty good scene. It's the scene that actually got me invested in the movie as a movie. The girl tells the whole story about, well, you know, she's like secretary and the guy came uh, asking for a job and then uh, he was led into his boss's office and then they had a talk and apparently he filled out a, a job application and uh, he comes out and everything seems pretty cool. Like it sounded like he had a good meeting with the with the boss. Again, we don't see any of this. This is all just a woman telling us. Uh, but then, you know, so she goes out with a roommate and they're in a club, they're in a nightclub or a bar or something. And they come across this guy. They go, hey, how you doing? Hey, how are you doing? And so now they're hanging out and then it becomes pretty obvious that the roommate and Charlie are really vibing. And so finally the roommate says, hey, you know, can you get another ride home? I think I'm going to go off with this guy. Oh, yeah, great. Sure. Fine. And then it goes off and then she comes home and then finds her roommate dead. And then she starts talking to the cops and saying, ah, maybe this Charlie guy did it. I don't know. But it was the last person who was with my roommate that, that I know. So do you know his last name? Well, no, he, Charlie never said his last name. But, you know, he came and saw my boss. He, I, he filled out a job application. Well, okay. So they call up the boss, wake him up in the middle of the night. He goes... And he, he kind of stonewalls him. I don't know what you're talking about. I talked to the guy. I didn't really, he didn't have any references. So I just threw him out. Really, huh? So it's the next, the next day. I actually old. really like that actor. That yeah, guy yeah, yeah. Is... Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. Okay. So, <laughs> so it's like, but we don't see, we haven't met the guy yet. Yeah. So the cops are like, well, let's go down there. And let's talk to the guy personally. All right. So they go down and he's like, yeah, I'm sorry. I really can't help you. You know, he didn't have any references. Uh, I don't hire anybody with references. So I, uh, you know, I, 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 I told him to go. Well, you know, your secretary says he was in here long enough that she was under the impression that he filled out a, a job application. No, there's no point. I mean, I'm, without references, there's no point in hiring him. So I didn't even bother. I just sent him out. Okay. So did he say his last name? Well, I can't even remember if he did. I mean, I, I, he probably did, but I'm sorry. I I can't help you. I don't remember it. And the cop goes, look, man. <laughs> this man brutally murdered this woman. It's it's terrible what he did to her. It's, it's, it's the roommate of your own secretary. And you can't give us any more than that? Well, I'm sorry. I can't remember. I'm sorry, but I can't. You are the only person to see this person. They're going out. They're killing people. All the way. Well, what the hell do you want me to do? About it? 
This guy stonewalling the cops oh. is a really good scene. This it's co- when I started liking the cops more. Yeah. It's when the when the acting all took a, a turn for the better. Oh, and later on, even when he's alone on the phone, yeah. when he's delivering like his lines on the phone. And no, I getting, like that guy. I like the guy through the whole movie. He's getting the, the completely guy. agitated. <laughs> yeah. Like he's the only one who's having to deal with the shit that's going yeah. down. One of the things I, I like about this movie is that, you know, you always hear like, you know, man runs amok, kills two. <laughs> and you're like, God, he didn't really run amok very well, did yeah. he? <laughs> like, if I'm going to run amok, I'm going to, like, kill at least 15 or 20. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't say that. <laughs> Maybe cut that part. <laughs> no, don't cut that. <laughs> but, like, in this movie, man runs amok. Man runs amok. Man is running amok. <laughs> Gala, what did you think of it? Let me just reiterate, anyone out there who wants to see this movie, do not look up the description on Letterboxd. It will ruin your viewing experience. This movie was awesome. (laughs) I loved it. I think it has so much heart and charm for exactly what it is. Now, mind you, my YouTube rip that I personally watched was so bad that it looked like an impressionist painting. (laughs) I could not make out any writing on the screen, but I had a lot of fun watching it. The murder in this movie is awesome. The spear, the pitchfork, and the bullet holes yeah. are amazing. I don't, that's a- The farm girl's my favorite murder. The farm girl oh. I love because the dogs are just watching her get oh, murdered. Oh, I know. And they're I know. sitting I was like, there. What kind of farm girl doesn't have like <laughs> totally badass black dogs that are like, hey, you're messing around with my master. What's going on here? <laughs> I'm just going to say those are animal reactions that you actually liked in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> just Well, point. they're a- animal non-reactions. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. Now, the romance between the cop and the witness did not really do it for me in this movie. Oh, I I liked it. I liked it as it went on. But I really liked the cops and I really liked the witness separately. I just didn't really like them together. Uh And now, quite I like, like the football playing guy. The yeah, football that, playing that guy, the guy who looked like, yeah, he's blonde like, hair and dark eyebrows. He and, probably is some St. Louis football player. <laughs> totally, <laughs> totally. And I love his outfits, yeah. like those. Like, uh, what year was this? Uh, like, uh, like probably made in seventy eight. Uh, released yeah, in seventy nine. Released in seventy nine. Nineteen seventy eight, seventy nine. His wardrobe is so awesome in mm. this. It's such cool. Like, that's how cops should be forced to dress No, but today. it's also, it has that neat moment that happens in, like I said, in these regional movies where the guys are awkward at the beginning and they're stilted, they're awkward, but then they get better and better and better they as learn, the movie goes on. They learn how on. to do it. They learn how to do it. Yeah. <laughs> now, Quentin, they actually do tell you why the man has run amok. In the scene where he is drowning the woman, he has a flashback to him having erectile dysfunction when he's having sex with the original girl from the bar. And she's saying, don't worry, it happens to everyone. And it, his erectile dysfunction has triggered him oh, to go okay. on this murderous oh, rampage. Oh, okay, yeah. And then, and then even the woman with, who goes swimming. She's laughing at him. and that Well, she's not really, she's just making an innocent comment. What's the matter? Do you have a problem with your birthday I love, suit? I yeah. love how the hitchhiker <laughs> just strips naked and gets in the yeah, ocean yeah. wanting him to join. Well, that's yeah. how it was back then. <laughs> it wasn't that way, all right? <laughs> we used to do not that all the, the time. Not when the guy doesn't talk to her and almost... Get, Gets him in a head-on collision. Well, I'm going to go swimming. Yeah. Hey, by the way, asshole, you almost killed us back there. Well, I'm going to go swimming. (laughs) That scene was really funny. But yeah, I think this is a great movie. has a lot of heart. I think anyone who has the chance to pick it up on the Severin Films Blu-ray, 
should do that mm. as it will be out January 25th. That's the, that's the brand new Blu-ray that's, that's coming out. The brand new Blu-ray. Oh, Severin's putting that out? Severin's that's a good, putting that's it out. That's a good company. Yes. Uh, but if you're like me, you can watch it on YouTube or pick up a VHS. I picked up a Paragon. Oh, the video, Paragon is VHS what I wish I had. Uh, yeah. For $33.95 off eBay. It is on its way. So when okay. I have it, Quentin, I'll bring it over so you can look at it. Excellent. 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 <laughs> well, everybody back uh, out there in uh, radio podcast land, uh, that brings us to the end of this episode. I want to thank Roger. Moonraker. I want to thank Gala. Moonraker. <laughs> to thank Roger Moore. <laughs> Moonraker. <laughs> Just like and our entire team here that are putting this uh, for your enjoyment. See you next time. See you guys. Thank you. Bye. The Video Archives podcast is hosted by Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery and produced by Josh Richman and Gala Avery. Our engineer is Devin Torrey Bryant, and our executive producers are Colin Anderson and Natalie Muellam. This episode featured additional production by Raven Goldston. Find out more about the show by heading to videoarchivespodcast.com. You can also find us on Amazon Music. Despite me sharing the same last name with this charity, I don't have any affiliation with it, besides the fact that the issue is very near and dear to my heart. Did you know that in the United States, 2.7 million children currently have a parent in prison, and it's estimated that 10 million children have experienced parental incarceration at some point in their lives? I was one of these kids, and as an adult, I am really grateful to be able to give back to Project Avery. Their mission is to build leadership from within by supporting community through programs such as mentoring and outdoor education, and also to remove the stigma surrounding having a parent that's incarcerated. You don't have to feel alone. If you know a kid who could use these resources or would like to donate money or time to the charity, please go to Project Avery, that's A-V-A-R-Y dot org, to check out what this amazing charity is all about. Again, that's projectavery.org. Thank you guys from the bottom of my heart. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 